Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, Dark Knight of the Podcast fans and friends and femmes and flamers and everything in between. Today, we are honored to not only have a guest among us, who is certainly a queer creator who I want to take a moment to uh, really raise up and acknowledge uh, for what he's brought to the table within the last couple of years, but also we are covering a film so renowned and celebrated that it's it spawned not one, not two, but three sequels. <laughs> and these sequels, one by one, I, I dare say get better and better. But this movie, I mean, it packs a fucking punch. And so does our guest. Wouldn't you agree, Troy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm being sarcastic about those sequels getting better and better. Let's just be clear. Well, <laughs> because if you see the cover art for the sequel number four, like the, <laughs> the expectations should be low. But this this entry, the first entry in this series, is a film that, uh, frankly, dare I say, does not get enough love, credit, or attention across the board. But even within the queer cinema scene, you know, horror. Um, and queer in general, just queer cinema in general, this film is a rather loving depiction of, of a family that is created uh, by a group of people who really need one another. And I think it's quite beautiful. And I can't wait to discuss it. And I can't wait to discuss it with our guest. So I am going to bring him into the spotlight and I'm going to give him a moment for all of you to ooh and ah. Today's guest is none other than Roman Kimienti who is one of the great minds behind the amazing, I can't emphasize it enough, Scream Queen documentary that has just been growing and growing and getting more and more and more attention ever since it was released. Uh, Roman, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Honestly, that was the best intro I've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> it's amazing how I could just turn it on, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. I do like to pack some punches, so fabulous. I mean, and across the board. And first of all, one thing, when I first ever was, laid my eyes on Roman was at the Cleveland International Film Festival. Uh, and from a distance, I thought, look at this sweet 25-year-old <laughs> who's, <laughs> who's already like already off making making documentaries and getting them screened. Wow, what a great future. Only to like, then see photos of you like growing up and living your life in the midst of like the 90s club scene. Oh, yeah. So I fooled you. Yeah. You, you, well, first of all, you don't age. Uh, it must be that beautiful <laughs> Italian skin. Uh, but but um, your life is just like, honestly, you're such an intriguing person just from social media alone because you do so much and you seem to be involved in just so much. Tell us just a little bit about like you and what makes you tip for our fans. Oh, God. Uh, well, it's probably, I think, just being like a little queer kid in the late 80s, early 90s, I've always been just kind of, uh, 
not satisfied with things. So I, you know, I, I found myself living in the big cities right away. Like the second I graduated high school, I was in a moving van to San Francisco. I was, you know, in LA, I, I just have always found myself, I'd like to throw myself into things and then figure out how to do them. So I were, I worked as a makeup artist in Hollywood for quite a while during the, those later nineties years. I came to New York and just found myself like in sound doing sound design. Uh, but I, I, I don't know, from my perspective, I almost feel like, oh, I haven't really done a, enough. Scream Queen to me felt like the first thing that I was able to really do that, that mattered. Uh, and then I'll go through my photos and be like, oh, yeah, I remember that time you worked with Madonna or remember that video you did over here. And so I guess I took a lot of that for granted growing up. It's all building to something too. Like you got to keep in mind those little things you look back and all of a sudden you're like, holy fuck. Like it's clear that you have a rich background. I, I'm, I love, I'm very happy to hear you say that. I need to be reminded of it. I feel like I, I will say this just to be sentimental for a moment with, with Scream Queen, I, I realized as a young person that I didn't really have very many mentors because that generation was gone and moving to San Francisco at 18 years old and feeling like there's this something was missing, but not quite understanding what or why uh, it, it kind of left my age range as a group of people that were just kind of like floundering on their own. And then as we grew up, we were just like, well, we do this on our own. You're on your own. And I realized as I got older, like, that's not okay. Just because we didn't have mentors doesn't mean that it is still not our job to be mentors. Um, especially now that we have more awareness of the past and, a, you know, the younger generation has more vocabulary for things and they're having these more mature discussions that I never had as a kid. So it is still my job to step up and be like, hey, this is what you need to know. And, you know, so that's, that's what Tyler, me and Mark have all been very, very conscious about throughout that whole production was that I haven't really been able to be, you know, uh, I, I I've always been kind of the black sheep within my family, my friends, my community, but the, I still, this is how I can have my voice join conversation. So Thank that you. was really uh, lovely, first of all. And um, <laughs> I've, I do want, I know the, the, the documentary itself, which again, I cannot emphasize enough how much I enjoyed it. In fact, that I had, uh, when I was attending the Cleveland International Film Festival, I saw it because I knew it'd be something of interest, but then I immediately canceled what I was seeing next and went and saw it again, uh, just because it, it's so lovingly played out. And I don't want to, the documentary itself, it, the documentary itself is telling the story of what its purpose is and what it's trying to shine a light on and giving Mark his platform to really speak uh, for, for the first time ever, really. So I don't want to take too much away from that. But if you wouldn't mind, like what really got you to the point where you had the ability to even be in contact with Mark Patton with, with, you know, conceptualizing this and everything? Uh, would you mind at least just setting kind of the groundwork for what got you there? Because it's such an interesting journey. You know, I have to say, um, Mark is somebody that it should be admired because even before he had a crew of me and Tyler, before his he had really like started to build a reputation as like, hey, there's a there's a queer horror community, and uh, I'm going to represent it. It was he was out there telling his tale to people that could have jeopardized him uh, getting more work at conventions. You know, 
he had been he had decided I found him because late at night out of the blue I decided I wonder what ever happened to that guy that was the star of my fucking favorite movie as a kid it was the first movie that made me fall in love with horror uh is the first one that I really like braved myself to watch um all the way through I mean I was a fan of like Poltergeist Poltergeist 2 all, all the kind of family horror that was coming out but like Elm Street at that time was still considered like oh my god that's hardcore you know part two was a big deal part one was super scary part three had just come out but I think it had just hit the the video shelves when I got it so I just was I I surprised myself in the fact that like wait how come I never even like noticed that this guy disappeared I've loved it so much. What happened? So I just like read about him online. I read that he had uh, done an interview for HIV magazine. Um, maybe I'm getting that name wrong, but he had, he had come out. He had disclosed his status. He had been very upfront about that. He has a story to tell. And I wrote to him and I was like, Hey, I, I would love to help you in whatever you're doing. I do sound work. I can, I can make it sound really good. I just think that, this is something that needs to be out there. And so over the course of a few years, uh, he was already working with a another production company somewhere else. And it was going in a different direction. And I was along for the ride to help with promos. And in the end, he just felt like he was going to quit that because it wasn't his story that they were developing. It was something more Freddy Krueger centric, which was a cute idea, but it really wasn't the story that he was trying to tell. So... He was about to quit and I, I begged him like, please don't do that. We've got so much to say here. So he just as a last gasp was like, all right, well, I'll let you give it a shot. And so I just wrangled up all of the people that I knew that could help. Every, Scream Queen is a collaboration of everyone that I know came in to help. Uh, I met Tyler at this point. And this is a really important thing that we like to bring up to people is you know, I was working on a job. He was on also a freelancer on this job. We didn't know each other. We're sitting next to each other editing. And he hears me telling the producer about this project I'm starting. And he just freezes. And then he pulls up his sleeve and he's showing me his like Freddy phone tongue tattoo on his arm. And the reason that's super important is like it was, I don't know, maybe 2014 or something and being a gay horror fan was still like really weird that I didn't I was considered like really weird for that it was very odd to find people like that so we both were like boom you're gonna help me with this and uh we hit the ground running like he really knows what he's doing in that movie I owe so much of this movie to Tyler because he is he's taught me so much in like how to control the environment, how to be really, how to be really concise with your storytelling and just, I don't know, it was a perfect partnership. So it's been wonderful. Anyway, with Mark, um, the one thing that I think people don't realize is that he, he really let us do whatever we wanted. He never, and it was very uncomfortable for him at times because, you know, for a lot of these people that went through that experience, they have just blocked out their trauma. You know, they got through it and they're like, I, I can't revisit that because I'll 
it's too much. So I'm just going to keep going. And for a lot of them, a lot of these, it opened a lot of doors that hadn't been opened for a long time. And he never once came in and said, oh, I don't like the way I look here, or I want to, I want this to be better. He just let it go. And I feel like that has, that's something that is very admirable because he put his story and his message before any vanity. Uh, he never, there was nothing we ever had to change on his behalf. And as filmmakers, that is like a, a, an, a it's a miracle, you know, usually your, your subject is going to have a say in that. And so I really, really value the fact that he trusted us enough to do that. Oh, that, that shows absolutely within the material in general, even like the spontaneity of some of the things, because you guys are very open about the process over the course of viewing it, you share the whole, you know, step-by-step step as things unfold. Um, and, and the authenticity of it is palpable, you know, uh, and it, it really feels like such a deep dive into this, this individual's life and, and the after effects of, of fame and what that did to him. Um, and the things he shares and the things he shares, and I, I don't want to, you know, I, again, this is something that's meant to be experienced for any of our viewers or listeners who are not familiar somehow, some way with this documentary, Scream Queen. Um, I urge you, urge you to see it um, just to have the full experience uh, and take away a really powerful message. Um, but for me as an HIV positive gay man, I've got to say the, the, the balls he had to just be so open with everything he shares in that. I mean, t I take my hat off to him uh, and I really want to just make sure he's aware of how powerful that is for the queer fans of the genre out there. Because what you said, you know, 2014, it was, it was difficult to come by people who are similar. And I really think social media has been a huge bridge for us to connect with others like ourselves. But I absolutely agree. I always felt like an outcast. And isn't that what horror fans often are, the outcasts who, who like things a little bit weird and like I'm a little bit different. Uh, and a lot of us have our own uh, traits that make us a bit different from those around us. And I think to have others within the uh, fans of the genre who we can fall back on, relate to, compare to, uh, share struggles with. I think he really gave us an amazing uh, jewel in his his willingness to share his story. Uh, and you guys really did it in a way that was just so beautiful and so eloquent. And um, I really just need to, again, tell you how much I truly enjoyed the experience of viewing it. Thank you so much. I mean, I will say that with the, the experience of viewing it, like you went to the Cleveland Film Festival. So on the flip side of things where things are just going great, we have a wonderful team. All You guys have made movies. So you know that there's like all of the bullshit that goes, the technical stuff that can go wrong, all of these things. So Cleveland was our very first show. Uh, and our DCP wasn't working right when we got there. Then when we got it working, which was a whole day of crying and screaming, uh, that, it had accident accidentally been made in mono. So if you went to the first show, it sounded awful. And then I had to like stay up all night and pull some strings and get a stereo mix uploaded from another state. So then the second day sounded a lot better, but also you saw an early cut had different stuff going on. It was, we, we definitely finessed it after we were able to sit in the audience and really like, ingest it and see like what's working what's not working we were able to really fine-tune it so the blu-ray that just came out is like the definitive edition but uh yeah i'm glad 
thank you so much for everything you said. I mean, it's great to know that what you did was meaningful. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And please share uh, with our listeners now, just specifically regarding that, if they are interested in viewing this documentary, which I, again, I highly, highly urge them to do, aside from the Blu-ray, which just came out, what's what's the best way to get either their hands on it or stream it? Uh, where can they find it? Well, essentially it's on everything except for Netflix at the moment. Yeah, it's on Hulu, it's on Prime, it's exclusive on Shudder. Uh, it's about to hit overseas. We haven't announced that yet, but we have contracts we're doing. So the overseas market that has been harassing me for years can now just back off. It's coming. <laughs> it's. I mean, that's the other thing is then the messages. Like, yeah, we had to turn off uh, messaging for a while because it's just the same thing. It gets distracting when you're like, I still have bills to pay. I got my other work to do, you know. But yeah, it's going to be. And, and, you know, every few years things change where we get new new platforms to sign with. So at the moment, if you have Shutter. That's an excellent place to start, uh, but it is on almost everything else as well. The Blu-ray just came out from Vinegar Syndrome. That has a lot, has hours of extras on there, stuff that we couldn't put in the movie, featurettes we made. Um, I think it comes with, oh no, the Brazil one has posters and all these cute things. Anyway, yeah, it's it's kind of fun. It's a fun ride still. I'm happy. For sure, and it sounds like you have a, still a long journey ahead of you, which is just all the more exciting. And we love Vinegar Syndrome. And we honestly, we love Shudder for what Shudder has been doing lately for, for the genre, but especially for the, the queer horror genre, yep. which is a niche that's evolving. And I think and now you- And they're unapologetic about it. So absolutely. I love yes. that. I love that. And you're involved with another project that has recently been- Oh yeah, embraced by Shudder. So that now you have two titles. You have uh, your your involvement with Death Drop Gorgeous. We've had a few of those boys on uh, previously for some of our past episodes. We love all of them; they're all beautiful. Um, but uh, how did that come about? So when we were on tour in Salem, Brandon from Death Drop Gorgeous came up to me. There was a whole bunch of people. We were at a party, uh, an 80s party. We brought Linnea Quigley with us. We were all dancing all night, but a, a lot of people congregated to meet us. And he was the one that came up and said, Hey, I have this movie and we really could use some help. We're wondering if like, maybe we could share it with you. And I was like, absolutely. Thank, thank you for coming up to me. And he actually came to meet me for a viewing and I watched it and I was like, instantly floored with everything that went into it yeah it was a crude rough edit but you still see that like these guys have a sense of humor and a storytelling that is unparalleled with this kind of film and it needs to come out there and the acting in that movie like the main the main villain is by far one of my favorite people i've ever seen in a film and that just the heart behind it so I don't know. I just, you know, you meet people and you're like, oh my God, we are a tribe. This is fabulous. And that's, that's how that went. It went from zero to 60 between all of us. And I'm so proud of everything they've done because they didn't have a Mark Patton in their movie. You know, that, that absolutely elevated our film. It gave us legs that walked for us when, you know, when we didn't have enough money or, you know, when we needed to find somebody that gave us clout, they had to do it all on their own and just really like say, Hey, we've made this like absolutely queer 
hard to sell movie for most outlets and we think you will want it and it really did well so good for them i do have a few other movies on shutter there is one movie that came out called lucky which uh is a polarizing film but it is really about it's it's from a female perspective it's written and directed by females and uh the story is just about women's place in our society and i i actually really love that one too uh so yeah it's i love that these things are being embraced by the horror platforms you know we need we need this stuff and that's how the conversation changes so absolutely absolutely and then listeners you just heard several titles key titles uh roman is directly involved with that that are available to be viewed right on shutter uh check them out please support queer cinema queer horror queer filmmakers in general um and and just acknowledging the importance of having queer representation within the genre uh, or in cinema in general done in a way that's tasteful, that's acceptable. Um, I think really translates and segues nicely into the film that we're going to be discussing today because totally when you brought this title up and I know how vivaciously queer you are. Um, and I think it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's like an electric aspect of who you are, you know, um, as it yeah. should be, you know, it's celebrated. Um, and then looking at this film that you say is your favorite film, uh, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yep. and, 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 fucking understandably so because the character <laughs> this this film may be dated in certain elements but my god the kinship between the focal characters and the love and the bond that exists between them uh i think resonates to this day and shows a great example of proper representation a bit ahead of its time right absolutely Oh, have we said what it is yet <laughs> no this is this is the segue <laughs> to it <laughs> Got it. I have been transfixed listening to you so eloquently talk about your your experience with uh, Scream Queen. And it's so great to hear the journey that was making that film. And the film is super important. And I feel like it came out at a very like prime time in like the horror annal. Uh, it's because, you know, queer horror is is starting to, I think, get a lot of recognition that it just n- it has not in the past. Uh, there is a lot of queer horror that is going mainstream. There seem to be a lot more uh, openly queer horror filmmakers. And, and you are seeing a lot of it, um, you know, come to the forefront. And I think, you know, Scream Queen was definitely uh, one of the first films that I remember hearing about that was so like, adamantly this is kind of the the focus and this actor's journey and how it affected him because i don't think you know young horror young queer horror, horror fans really get how how long this journey has taken you know to get to the point we are now and we still have a long way to go but god dang it certainly is a lot better than it was back when mark Patton made a nightmare on elm street too right absolutely Uh, The only other thing that I hope people take away from listening to me blab about myself is that they realize that like, listen, things can go, can change really quickly. It might seem like a long time, but like in 2014 or 15, when I met Tyler and Mark and I really got our direction going, it was still weird to be a gay horror fan. It was still weird to talk about gays and whore it was and then now like it hasn't been that long totally different world because as soon as people stand up and start throwing your their voices in they it like 
echoes and and things happen quickly so for anyone that might be in a place that they feel a little isolated or a little stuck or you know they're too young to move out their environment's bad just know that like hang in there because it will it will actually things turn around so quickly as long as you're putting one foot in front of the other and and change can happen really quickly so yeah like we might have just we might be in some politically nightmarish times, but just know that like you keep going and things will move quickly. Um, that's, that's exactly what the character in this film did. Correct. We're going to, we're going to transition right? to it so that we can. Yes, yes, yes. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, so that we can start talking about the film no. because the film we are discussing is 1984's <laughs> angel. Which I had told you I have I had never seen this film. Which before. is why I'm super excited to talk to you about it. I know, <laughs> I know. And then I went I went down this rabbit hole with these oh sequels. And last night I was I was texting Roger the the, the, the cover <laughs> art to all the sequels. I'm like, what the fuck? Look at this. Oh, I did not know this was a whole franchise. I said to I said to Roman, <laughs> I, yeah, the Avenging Angel. And every time she's every movie she's played by a different actress. It's never the same no, actress twice. Uh, what Betsy Russell. <laughs> no. Mitzi Capture and then some broad I'd never heard of that blonde broad in the fourth one she looked I didn't even know there was a fourth one to be honest I have three of them oh my god you know and every time she has a different career path yeah she's 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 like you know we talk about life changing Roman and you're exactly right just look at sweet sweet Molly the delicate avenging angel every you know every new movie there's a new twist and a new turn and her life takes a new direction she's a pre-law student in one she's a nurse in one she's a business executive in the fourth one but she isn't she an artist at one point yeah she keeps going back to the streets of Sunset Boulevard to well she goes she goes undercover as an art dealer so yeah there we go so yeah. she i guess she's also she's also in the law force or i don't know good for her it covers a lot of bases she covers a lot of bases but seeing the seeing the depiction well i don't want to see the depiction because it feels very authentic seeing the the strip on full display in this movie no fucking wonder it calls her name because i you know the last two films we reviewed roman are both two films set in las vegas that didn't serve us enough Las Vegas. Like yep. we did not get a taste of that nightlife of what it really feels like. It felt very forced, very shoehorned in. This film, find me a better depiction of the strip. Find me a movie that gives me more of the of both the grit and the glamour and just the energy. I mean, this movie sucks you into the <laughs> There yeah, absolutely there's another movie from around this time called The Wildlife that's more like an 80s teen type movie, also one of my very favorites that has this same vibe, but it's cuz it was the same sort of budget, well, it was a little higher, but it was from the same time. 1984 1983 um you could you could block off hollywood boulevard for your movie for a few hours like now that's like impossible unless you're making an x-men film you know so also i don't know if you guys probably watched this on prime or something you don't have the discs it's i watched it on shutter it's on shutter oh right I watched on I watched on Tubi. The Blu-ray that I got, I love this movie so much. I've owned it like four times. But the Blu-ray has hours of interviews with like the writers and directors. So I have, I have some revelations about that too. But yeah, the strip. It's like it really is authentic the way you see it. 
uh, the atmosphere is absolutely established in a way that it is exciting. I mean, that's why I moved there. I lived on that street. Hollywood Boulevard was, I mean, not as exciting when I lived there in the 90s, but it still was gritty and I loved it. And I can't think of a movie that takes a location and makes it feel like such a character within the actual film. Like the, the actually the location and everything about it is, is so pivotal to the movie that it's just ever present. And it, it just really enhances the viewing experience. Troy, I'm so curious knowing this was your first time viewing it. I know we're saving it all for the, the actual dissecting and review of the movie, but give me three words that come to mind after watching this movie. Oh, three words that come to mind after watching this movie. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I can't think of three words. I, I know what I want to say, but it's it's longer than three words. Okay, just say it. Say I, it. I will say um, schizophrenic after school special. Oh my God, totally. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, to me, the it just was a, it was kind of a jarring uh, view in, in certain spots because it plays very much at times like an after school special, mm-hmm. including the, 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 the score is very after school special and some of the elements that are dealt with are very, you know, something you, 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 you'd seen in after school special. And then, but then it's, it's, it's juxtaposed with this young 15 year old prostitute and these gruesome murders by a necrophiliac. It's just like, what the hell are you watching here? And then you get these larger than life, like Susan Tyrell (laughs) as a, as a butch lesbian and, you know, may Dick Sean, Dick Sean played May. Those two together make this movie. You know what? I want a, I want a, I want a sequel. I want Angel Five, but it needs to be Solly. It needs to be May. We need to bring her back, and it needs to be that goddamn guidance counselor. Oh yeah. Oh god, I love her, Miss Allen. Is that her <laughs> yeah, name? Yeah, Miss Allen. Allen. Uh, she the the twist in that character when it when, <laughs> when it comes, I was like, bring it on, give me more of her, because she is she's the kind of gal I want to know. Like she's progressive minded. I really like all the characters in this, even the even like the detective characters, which are often so throwaway or are only there to represent like that mentality. Like the detective here, the lieutenant, he, even he has like a heart. And like clearly cares about the well-being of of this character of Molly. So I think across the board, the characters in this film elevate the material. It makes it so much better. Because at times you're right, Troy. Even down to like the delicate flute that like it starts off the movie. That delicate yeah. <laughs> flute. It's so like you said, after school special. Oh, super heavy-handed in some some wide shots where she's like crying, <laughs> walking through a big field, and it's like. And my closed caption has to really sell that it's sentimental music playing. You know, it's they really yeah. they really like went kind of heavy handed and it was perfect. Well, if you, <laughs> yeah, if you if you don't know what this movie is about going into it, if you really don't and you start watching it, you really think you're going to be watching some teenage drama because, you know, the opening shot. Yeah. With that flute music, that sweet flute music. Can we can we talk about the poster, though? Because I think that's where everybody started oh, yeah. with this film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that poster is that poster. I know so many people who have actually had like gay men and women alike who have had that poster prominently displayed yep. within their homes. Before I ever saw the movie, I had seen the poster and I was very aware of it. And like it puts it. What amazes me about this film is it puts it right out there. Like, this is a film, let us be clear, about a 15-year-old honor student who also has a double life as a prostitute. And that, 
upon like just hearing that that is a that is a problematic concept but they managed to make her so like endearing <laughs> but the post the poster itself was so sleazy looking that it actually sells the movie differently than it is it makes it seem like yeah. it's so usually you assume 1984 young girls hookers on hollywood boulevard it's going to be for male gaze and it's going to be super sleazy and it's going to have all the cliches of, you know, the the women are just these disposable things that need to be saved by some good natured cop. And and then you realize if you watch this movie, it is none of those things. It is absolute different perspective. It is super gay. It is super pro female. It's like all the men in this are awful. They say stupid things in their caricature of what you should not be. Um, and they know that it's self-aware. I love it. But the poster, I remember seeing it on the shelves going to rent stuff. And I'm like, uh, that looks really dirty. You know, that looks like, like they are trying to sell this as pornish and it is not at all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No. And I think they're, they're very careful with the character of Molly as well as they they dance around a lot of like the sexuality of that particular character. And I don't know if it was like a, if it was like Donna Wilkes, you know, her choice or, or her part of her, you know, agreement to take the role was to keep it very classy because around that, that particular character, even though she is a hooker and they put her in, in situations where she is with John's, you never see nudity. You never even see anything really hinted at. You never even really see her kiss, kiss anybody. However, the very next scene, she's surrounded. She's surrounded in her locker room with all of these naked girls running around with their vaginas and their tits hanging out totally but she, she is but she is never ever put in a scenario like that i just thought it was very interesting i was i, was I mean it was still 80s so they had to include some of that you know yeah a little payoff i was wondering if it was like her like a like part of her stipulation to take the role is like you know what i'll, I'll do this but i'm not doing nudity i'm not doing it. because she was old i mean she was 24 23 when she did this film so I just found that very interesting. Like she almost seems to be in like a completely different movie at times. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. I There's an interview with her in the Blu-ray extras. And I believe she talks about this, but I don't really remember the details. Uh, she had been in Jaws 2. Yeah, I think she was trying to be more of a legit actress. And the subject matter could be problematic, especially considering that she's playing somebody that's really underage. Yeah, and I know she did Blood Song too. I haven't seen that one. The, the movie Blood Song, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good underrated little slasher film. I understand that this film is 80s, but I'm still shocked that they opted to go 15-year-old prostitute. I just never thought there was a time where that was a a thing that was like a welcome narrative, but I'm like, you know, bring it on. And they do, you know, I do think they you know, they do sexualize it, and you're right, in the poster and everything, the promo images and so forth, they sexualize it, and they sexualize her. But I appreciate that once you actually view the film, she's probably the least sexualized individual within that world out of all of them. And I, I like that because they still do manage to, like, maintain her youth and, and her spirit. I would say sweetness because she's still definitely she's a seasoned woman at this point, but she's still like wide eyed to certain aspects of the world. And they keep that true to her, uh, which I appreciate because it definitely makes her, like I said, all the more endearing and really more likable. Because, like, I, I mean, I'm going to say it, Donna, we love her. 
We love her. I, I could I could take a dip in those eyes, those big pools of just fawn eyes. Um, but her performance at times is a bit wooden, uh, as you know, as you do in 1984. Oh, Roger, I thought the same thing, and then I watched the sequel. You, you watched the sequel. Uh, let me tell you. I did. I watched Avenging Angel last night. Let me tell you, uh, Donna looks like fucking Meryl Streep and Sophie's <laughs> Choice compared to Betsy Russell. Let's just... Oh, God. But you know what? The, I'll, even though, even with that, even with some big acting choices at, at times, there are some big, big acting choices. I never dislike her. I never dislike her. I like her in the character. And then she has a few sentimental moments where she actually is quite good. So it just, you know, I, I like her in this character regardless. There are a few scenes I'm going to bring up where she makes some big choices. I do feel like, I, I do feel like sometimes I got the vibe watching her that she at times knew how ridiculous <laughs> what she, the, the line she was saying or the scenario that she was in was, and it was really hard for her. Well, to I mean, how could that. you not? <laughs> when you, the scene of all the hookers outside the hotel, like yelling at the cop. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Telling it how it, it was, is. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I will, I will say that, that like, I appreciate being able to revisit these old movies and that, Somebody, if if you've seen it and you're able to put it in the context of the times, that's great. And if this is your first viewing and you're looking through, mo- I mean, Scream Queen was all about revisiting things with a modern lens, right? But I also think it's really important, especially when you watch shows from this decade, to also have an understanding of the era, which I think is where the 15-year-old prostitute comes into play because during that time hollywood boulevard hollywood in general was littered with runaway kids that had to do this kind of stuff so it was i don't think that they were the writers or whatever were as aware of like the bigger picture here but just knowing that that is a common thing i can see why they would write that without understanding like Oh wait, you know what? One day we're gonna wake up and be like, she could have been eighteen and still had the same story. <laughs> yeah. You know what is going on here? There is a, enough stakes at play that having her be a minor isn't really necessary. <laughs> like it's not. It doesn't play a massive uh, a massive aspect of this. Would you say? No, but there there are points where like some of her clients are like, you better you better only be fourteen, <laughs> bitch, or you're getting out of my car. I'm like, oh, okay. So apparently, the, the fifteen year old hookers were in demand back then. Yeah, I guess so. Guys, guys are really gross. So you know that that was a whole thing for them. But also, she was the whole thing is that the secret, you know, that she's hiding a secret at home and. If you've ever seen like the film, the little girl who lives down the lane, that's all oh my similar. God. Yes. I have, I have that note. I have that exactly. Really? Jody, the Jodie Foster, Martin Sheen movie. Yes. It reminded me of that. Very much. Totally reminded love me of that, that movie a lot. Yeah. So that there's a, there's a parallel there in that she's like, a, she has to sort of be a minor to pull off what we'll probably talk about later in that there is something at home that is conflicting with her trying to be a good honor student, you know? Well, the film opens with, like we said, the sweet uh, after-school special music. The camera follows us to, her name is Molly slash Angel, okay? When she's the schoolgirl in her normal everyday life, she's Molly. When she she gets out on the boulevard at night, she becomes Angel. But she comes out of her house in this very Britney Spears, hit me baby one more time, ensemble, her uniform. She walks down to the, to the bus stop. I love that she has to walk like a mile to the bus stop. Like she has to walk th- past the Hollywood, you know, 
walk of fame. <laughs> it's like literally this woman's walking a mile to the bus stop, just walk the rest of the way. But the bus picks her up, takes her to North Oaks Prep School, where we find out she is an honor student. Oh, she's got full pigtails. She's got knee socks. She's like, she looks like such a fresh faced cherub. Uh, even people on the street are like, hi, Molly. Like, it's just, you know, everything seems so like picturesque and perfect to begin with. Little, little do you know that when nighttime hits, She's walking the fucking streets. But to start... <laughs> that first cut was the best. When she's like, I'm sorry. My mother says I'm too young. I'm too young to date. Cut to Red Teddy hanging up behind her as she's putting on super new wave streetwalker makeup. And you're like, what is happening? Like, who wears that? That's awesome. When that... When that 45-year-old Wayne dude asks her out. <laughs> the, awkward, the, the awkward ginger man with who is like who has a face of fear as he approaches her. It's so weird, yeah. And the delivery of that. My my mother says I'm too young to date. It is so like wink at the audience. Like it's completely aware of what it's doing. <laughs> I would love to redo it today and just have her hand him some chapstick. Like he needed it. Oh, bad. that poor guy. And I, I agree with you. And I love that we get the full makeup transformation where she goes from like baby-faced young woman to like mistress of the night where she's like painting her cheeks with rouge and everything pink and blue eyeshadow i love it it was good then it cuts as she puts on her makeup she changes her you know she changes into her little dress and high heels and we cut to uh the boulevard at, at night and this place looks like a fucking hoot i mean all of the street performers we get we get harry krishna's magicians Kit Carson, the old television cowboy played by Rory Calhoun, who horror fans should know by the film Motel Hell. This is a character that I, right off the bat, know that I need to know more of. He perfectly encompasses, again, that nightlife, that vibe, the kind of personalities that come out. And he's played so fucking warm. He's such a gentleman, even to the queer characters that come into play. I love the level of respect he has for the ladies. And he's just such like a magnetic personality. Like you're just like, you want to see more from him off the screen right away. Yeah. The fact that they lead with almost like this is the chosen family. You don't know why exactly. You don't know her backstory, her secrets or anything. You don't really know anything about anybody other than they're all like a ragtag bunch of people that have bonded together. And they, they really establish that with the edits where they're all walking away from the, you know, filmed from the back and hugging each other. And, and it just feels like very outcast and supported. I don't know. It, I loved it. It's free of judgment of one another. I love yeah. that regardless. There's such support and camaraderie. Um, it, it, yeah. that uh, One of the just standout elements of this film is, is the chemistry between these characters. I like that the first guy who tries to pick Angel up on the street genuinely, he legitimately looks like Colin Farrell in full prosthetic as the penguin in the latest, ba- the latest Batman movie. Like this, <laughs> this uh, puffy, clammy man. Just like... <laughs> just like pulling up and being like talking all sweet to her. And she immediately is onto something and starts playing the whole, I want to make sure you know that I'm underage and blah, 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 blah. Because she's well aware that this fucker is a cop. He's like, how do you, how would you know I'm a cop, sweetie? And she opens the glove box and there is a radio. (laughs) She's like, well, why would you have that? If you want to, he drops her off. And this is when we are introduced to the character of may who I love, love, oh love this character yeah, so she much. She steals my heart. 
Absolutely. That this character was done like you think about uh guys playing drag in older movies and it seems like they're almost mocking themselves but in this case he was fierce and it was it was like no i am i i love these people in or out of my acting gigs and you could tell yeah, yeah. and i am i i love like i mean the one liners are so hilarious <laughs> but also like so true to that kind of personality like it never seems it's she would be an exaggerated personality, but it never seems for the point of exploiting her or mocking who she's representing. It just feels it feels authentic to that again that nightlife and who that person is. Well, one of her one of her first lines is when she bumps into this young like punk looking kid, and she's like, "God damn freaks! What's this, this city? This street's going to hell!" You know? Yeah, and here you you have this character who I mean, let's 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 be honest. Forty years ago when this film came out, people would think was a freak herself, right? Uh, many people would. So just to see this character so blatantly call another a young punk a freak, push him out of the way, and say, what is this neighborhood coming to? It's very like ahead of its time. Yeah, well, the, co- the confidence that these characters have in themselves is ahead of its time. They're unabashedly queer. They're unabashedly out loud, and they're not attempting to hide it or mask anything from anybody. And you get that from several other characters coming up as well. And I think that's one of the most amazing takeaways from this movie is how just openly and unabashedly queer these characters are allowed to be. She even goes and tells the, uh, the, 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 the chop, the cop to go home and spank his monkey and leaves it at that. <laughs> we do learn then through uh, the Lieutenant getting sucking on his ice cream cone uh, he goes up to talk to another street cop and we, we get this conversation that, and it's revealed that there is a killer on the loose that has been in their words, hacking up prostitute may and angel walk on by. Then, then we cut to a scene with the, this random guy in this dark dingy looking apartment strapped to a board doing his sit-ups. One sweaty sit up and I'm already on board whatever this is this is supposed to be like this I don't think this guy is supposed to be sexy but I mean there is a scrub down scene coming up that I was like I was like let me play that back a couple more times just to really get into every nook and cranny of things because this guy for being like a a cuckoo bananas serial killer (laughs) uh, with a taste for prostitutes he still manages to be rather sexy sometimes and I feel awful admitting that but I'm gonna say it right now I mean, I watched this with my friend who hadn't seen it. And I was like, listen, there are so many lines in here that will change your life. Just sit down and watch this. And when that came on, he was just like, oh, my God, this guy is amazingly hot. He can murder me. And I was like, "Okay, cool. But then you start seeing that there's these shots where he's like naked, scrubbing himself like with, you know, panic, anxiety after he's murdered somebody. And the shots are him standing in this metal basin and but these beautiful city lights coming through the window behind him and like his ass is silhouetted like somebody knew what they were doing here this movie it has not been a, the people behind it haven't admitted to anything but this is a fully gay made movie it has to be right and you know they threw the boobs in the showers in afterwards just because someone's like your audience needs to get some payoff here you know Someone on this crew had to be gay for the sheer fact that when gay and when any, any form of queer in general is depicted, 
Um, it, it just feels like whoever handled it did so without it being a parody. It's always written in a way that feels right from the fucking horse's mouth. Like, like I said, even the one-liner dialogue, I'm like, that totally, like, that fits. The kind of, the, the chemistry between Sally and, um, and May, their dialogue, their banter between a lesbian and a drag queen. I mean, I'm like, God, whoever wrote this, it's kind of genius at times. And it, they do such a great job of just authentically capturing the kind of uh, camaraderie between these personalities. So yeah, there had to be. You're absolutely right. I wouldn't believe it any other way. Yeah, I think the the writer and co-director, his name is Vincent O'Neill, he had a really nice scarf wrapped around his neck in his interview. And he talked about doing set design and just, you know, all of the... Uh, he talked about really artistic flourishes in a way that seemed to me like perhaps he was very experienced with the subject matter. And I am so glad that he did. Yeah. Well, there's no way someone's wearing a neck scarf and not coming across as somewhat of a homosexual. I'm sorry. But I do love me a good ass, Scott. And I love me a good ass at that. So, Word. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. We come upon a diner sequence here where we're, for the first time we get a look at kind of some of the gals out on the town. Um, <laughs> that I really just want to say that give me a night out with these four because... This seems like a good time. Three hookers, one of which was a minor, and this elder seasoned drag queen, or I'm sorry, just, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming she's living now in this persona. So I don't, I don't want to assume that she is a drag queen. She very well may be a depiction of transgender at this point. I really don't know exactly what their goal is with the character, because at a certain point you do get her out of out of May. And I don't know exactly what their goal was with how she identifies, but it still feels very progressive. And it does so because the chemistry between her and the three girls is so loving. It's never questioned or brought up or it's never even made a topic. She's just one of the gals and they're having themselves a good time aside from bitchy Lana, who is understandably scared of being <laughs> murdered. Uh, but I just love seeing the, the chemistry between these four as they're sitting there at the, uh, the restaurant table, the owner comes up, he serves all of them again, nothing gets brought up. Um, nothing is pointed out about any of the girls or, you know, may. Um, and I, I love just seeing the fact that it's just kind of, she just coexists with them. I mean, all of it was perfect. I loved the diner scene with all these girls. I kept thinking, like, I've seen these girls in so many other things, but I looked them up, and they weren't really. Uh, they did a great job of just having a camaraderie be between them. And again, like, it was having been on that street a long time ago, it really was true. Like, it, it all of it just, it was, uh, it was a little seedy. It was also really alive. It was it was fun. So it seems like they were enjoying it. They all separate. They leave the they leave the diner. Um, and Crystal and Angel walk together. And as they're walking, she go. They they separate. Crystal runs into this gentleman. He's a street performer, magician named Yo Yo Bob. So Yo Yo Bob, Yo Yo Bob. He's 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 a really sweet guy. He's kind of dressed like a mime. Crystal approaches him, and I do. Again, I like the fact that he is very respectful to her and her profession. Like there's no judgment in these characters at all. I mean, he asks her how business has been. Um, and she's like, yeah, it's been kind of up and down. Get it? Yo-yo. Ha ha ha. But it's it's just another really sweet interaction between between characters. 
And he seems like a genuinely nice guy. I really like this guy a lot. Well, and I love that they gave Crystal, who overall the amount of time she has on screen is rather brief as we come to find. But this scene makes the two of them just so damn likable, which for a for like a street worker and a hooker, like the fact that they can do that and make them seem just so natural and lovable already goes to point out something about the filmmaking craft here. Uh, there's obviously an understanding of how to treat these characters and how to handle them. And this little shared moment between the two of them where he gives her this gift of this kind of top that he um, has as part of his his magic show. Uh, it's just so sweet. Her little reactions to him, uh, the flirtation between the two of them, it's very well played. Their acting here is actually quite standout, I feel. Yeah, I, yeah he gives her that little top that he spins around and then he puts it in her hand and it's spinning around. She's like, Oh, it's so beautiful. And then she, she's like, you know what? I, I better get back to work. So she, she walks away and as she's walking down the street, she's approached by this very unassuming, good looking guy. And I'm assuming they're kind of with this character and the way he looks like his, his, his looks and his physique, because you're right, Roger, he is a very good looking guy. He has a rock and body. We, we see that we see it on display quite a bit. Uh, I think they were kind of going with that whole, like, Ted Bundy type vibe that you know that serial killer could look like your got your the, the guy next door. It's not necessarily always the you know the creepy you know looking guy because of all the guys in this film, he would be the one that I would at least think was a serial killer. I would I would I would uh, peg Wayne, the redhead from the beginning, <laughs> as a serial. Killer. But no, but it's just so I think there I, th- I just thought it was interesting they were going with that direction like the Ted because Ted Bundy you know this wasn't that far off of, from Ted Bundy getting you know caught for mm. all of those murders so I think they were kind of going with that hey let's get this young good looking guy to be the killer and make it you know that more that much more um, maybe disturbing a strong choice I think too because you not I mean not only is he just a handsome guy with a banging body you get a lot of scenes of him like kind of neurotically working out. Uh, He's obviously very obsessed with his physicality and his physique, and it just plays into this character's um, mentality, I feel. I do wish, though, I guess if I had one major, I don't want to say complaint, but one major issue with the film that I I wish they could have maybe dived into more. and And trust me, I get why they didn't. I really do. But for me, being like this huge true crime fanatic, I've mentioned this many times, my my other passion is true crime. I really kind of was hoping that they would give us a little bit more backstory on this killer because he is the least developed character in the entire film. Uh, we get little kind of glimpses. Okay, we know he has an issue with his mother. Okay, but there's not, he doesn't have any dialogue. And I know, I know it, it kind of adds to the whole um, tone of the film and gives it an air of mystery about wh- why is he killing? Who is this guy? But I just felt like I kind of wanted to know more because his, his MO, his method of killing was so like just brutal and you know, I, I was kind of like, why are you, what happened to you to get you to this point where you're killing prostitutes before you have sex with them? You're killing them so you can have sex with their dead bodies. That's quite disturbing. Like you see him in his, in his home life, which is bathed. Just work. In, all he does is work yeah. out and eat raw eggs. Well, I mean. yeah, it's bathed in, it's like <laughs> bathed in neons and like they light it really specifically. I like that about it. Uh, which I think is very like represent- re- representative of his, of his mindset when you compare that lighting to a lot of what else you see in the movie. But I do 
wish that we saw him maybe in his day to day a little more what makes him tick. I can I can agree on that because he technically doesn't even have really any dialogue until his final the final moments of the film, which that is also surprising. So it does feel like he is a bit of a kind of just a, a plot tool. He could have used a little more fleshing out, but I still do like the fact that they went with an attractive killer. Um, I think you're very much right what they were tapping into for the influence for that. I, I kind of feel the opposite of you guys, though. I, I appreciate what you're saying. I definitely think that a lot of people agree with you. Um, I love that they don't. Oh, I, I mean, it starts off if you're it, it's easy to miss this. But the movie opens when you first meet the detectives. Uh, they're literally explaining all of this. Oh, he's probably like, you know, has mother issues, abused by his father probably bisexual impotent he loves necrophilia like they kind of just like throw it all at you in the beginning before you actually really meet the guy so in that way i think it it's easy for it to not stick information wise and then you know he's like doing that whole egg scene where he's sucking the yolk out of this egg for like an hour uh and you see he's like dealing with this egg in his mouth, but his eyes are staring at the photo on the wall of the mother and him. And so you, you kind of ingest that there is this like family trauma going on, but this is where I kind of pull the, the context card from, from these years, there were so many movies about killers, like uh, when a stranger calls and stuff where they don't really explain the horror is that there is just a psycho that can cross paths with you and you don't know why but you can't get away from them. Um, and I think the more you know, the more empowered you are as a viewer. Um, and, and I do think that that sometimes takes away from the fear. So I, I always appreciated that you have no, no idea what, what's going on with this guy. So that kind of keeps every scene as a possible what could happen. And I appreciate that you mentioned that point because that is valid. That it, There's the scene with... I think Collins is his name and the Lieutenant where they're having the ice cream and he, he, he asks him for some backstory and you're right. He, the Lieutenant gives a, a full rundown of aspects of this character that I think are pretty much dead on. You know, I think that truly is the description right there is who this person in is, I'm sorry, is who this person is. And we're coming into it. That's the explanation of what they've got. And so when we're introduced to him, he fits that mold. He just doesn't look what we would necessarily anticipate. I think the whole thing is we're all expecting him to look one way and then you get him. And while it does check off all the boxes of what he says, you know, he's a necrophiliac. uh, He has family issues. That's, that is hit on directly with that egg scene. He also just happens to be pretty damn fucking hot. Well, hopefully that's where the bisexuality part comes in. But um, I do have to say that had they... So all of those things are kind of toxic and problematic for the era. So I'm kind of glad they didn't go into it more because then I probably would have been like, ah, this is just one of those like dumb dude scare tactic horror tropes, you know, And, and they didn't. So it allows me to really, really love the movie. Because, uh, you know, I think other hands in the pot would have definitely made this a different movie. But I don't know. Uh, it would If they made, they probably should have had more of that in the sequel. Like, give us more backstory. I guess people going to a sequel want more backstory. Well, the sequel did its uh, complete, its, its its own thing. That was just <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah, so we, but when he takes, he, he gets Crystal and he takes her, he, she picks him up. He's going to be her 
date for the evening. So she takes him back to the hotel. There's this hotel that I guess all the the prostitutes have room, nightly rooms that they rent, that they do their their work out of. So she's going to take him to this hotel. And as they approach, these two other prostitutes come out of a a different room and kind of spook him. And he immediately grabs her and drags her uh, into an, like an alleyway that's right beside the the motel and he has his hand around her mouth holding her and as the two um these two gals walk by just joking about their last trick he takes a knife and stabs poor crystal in the back with it I really like this sequence in the sense that it's not necessarily anything too violent or gory but the whole aspect of the hookers just you know just maybe 15 20 feet away in midst of a conversation while he's in there in the shadows killing this girl. It doesn't need to be anything overtly violent or gory because it's all about the kind of suspense of, are they going to notice it? Do they pick up on what's going on? She, you know, technically she is just inches away from getting away. Unfortunately though, she does not. So because of the way this film is hand or this, I'm sorry, this sequence is handled. It, it, I actually find it to be quite a strong opening kill sequence. One of the things that uh, I've actually learned from Tyler working on our film is when you have somebody that is being victimized with potential help nearby that they can't be reached, it makes the whole thing more traumatizing. So somebody that could potentially either bear witness to this and be helpless to it, or that help is it, just like uh, Drew Barrymore at Scream in the opening scene when she's being killed and like, you're seeing that help is like right there. Oh my God. It makes the whole thing crazier. And that's how that scene played. I think I agree. And it's, it almost reminds me also of the Sarah Michelle Geller death scene. And I, I know what you did last summer where she is so oh close to reaching that street with the parade going by um, before she's grabbed and killed. I think that's the one that, Tyler likes to reference all the time. We talk about this all the time, but I had never really thought about that. He always said that the, uh, the Tina death in Elm street was like that. Cause Rod was like looking on helplessly and that had he not been there, it still would have been gruesome, but it wouldn't have made you feel as helpless. So that's a really good tactic to use. If you want to make somebody seem more threatening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Having a character there bearing witness and giving a reaction, like a palpable reaction, amplifies, I would agree, the fear in the moment because you're seeing somebody actually respond the way you would, uh, seeing it firsthand. It definitely gives you something to like grab onto and, and feel along with. But these two broads are oblivious, though. They don't even know it's But going they're on. so they close are... that you feel like, just shout to them, shout to them, but she can't. Yeah, yeah. If she if they looked over at the wrong point, if one of them just like looked over to the side, it would have all have gone completely differently. You know. Well, and not only is he not only is it bad enough that he stabs this poor girl in the back, then we kind of see what his, you know, end go end game is with her because he has her laying in the bed in the hotel room, all covered up. She looks very peaceful. Um, he comes out. He's just wearing his shirt. He's wearing no shirt, just his tight little black jeans. He goes over to her. We know she's dead, but he starts, he kisses her and then he pulls down the sheet to reveal, to reveal her, her naked breasts and stares over her for a few seconds before he begins unbuttoning his pants. 
Oh, he's definitely about to fuck that corpse. And like, there's that goddamn flout is playing again, like the elegant flute music, like over time. As though this is like a soft, sentimental moment. No, this guy's about to bang a corpse. It's it should be horrifying, but the music choice here is very strange. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, I don't know if it's the same composer for these moments, but it's Craig Safan who did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Four. And I could hear it when I, I've always been like, ah, I know this composer because that's his style, you know, but I don't know who did, if he also did the kind of flute music too, which is, um, I mean, honestly, it makes those scenes even better. (laughs) It does. Like, (laughs) not not the way they intended it, but it definitely like adds something. The after school special Um, (laughs) aspect. I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely like a you can walk away with this with something to learn kind of vibe to it. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Um, I, meanwhile, while all this is happening, um, May and Molly have been escorted home by gentlemanly Kip, who is just such a gentleman to these dames. He even calls them ladies as he drops them off. Um, and then May proceeds to offer a 15 year old child a drink. <laughs> and they enter the, uh, the the hotel complex they're living in, and we are introduced to the aggressively lesbian <laughs> Sally, who's uh, got a mean eyebrow and an even meaner attitude at times. And I love her. I fucking love her. <laughs> I love, okay. This, this character, her and May, like I said, I would, I would watch a buddy film with those two <laughs> every, for, I mean, forever and throw that fucking school counselor in there as well. But let me tell you, I just want to highlight Susan Tyrell, one of the most underrated character actresses of all 100 percent this woman has given some powerhouse performances and every performance i've seen her and she just disappears into the character and gives it just this like gives gives the character these raw gritty uh mannerisms that you are just sucked in i mean this is an academy award nominated actress i don't know if either of you have seen fat city um, from 1972, but she got an Oscar nomination for that for best supporting actors. And she, in my mind, she should have won. Um, but, and one of my favorite performances from a horror film of all time is her performance in night warning, AKA butcher Baker, nightmare maker, where she just progressively gets batshit crazier as the film goes on. Um, such an underrated actress. And she just, I don't even want to say choose the scenery in this film because she's not really doing that, but it's just this, she gives this character so much personality, so much grit. You, you get a, you get a whole story from this character just by her mannerisms and her manner of speaking. You almost know her whole life story. You, You feel like this character is lived in, meaning that the actress portraying her, didn't just come up with, with a, a persona. She actually, you, it feels like she really absorbed who this character is and, and becomes her on screen. And, and what I think is really a testament to that is there are times that she is a bit bigger with um, some of her humor, but then there's also a few moments with her that are very sentimental and emotional. I mean, she has a scene towards the end of the movie that, that, that makes me, that makes me cry, like literally makes me cry. And it's because it feels so very real. This That scene is what Tyler and I would quote to each other when we were exhausted 
and dying at the end of editing all the time. And I, uh, you were like, you were like, you, you gorgeous bro. Somebody, well, so usually it would be me, like just being like a, a producer bully, and Tyler's like, it's been twelve hours, I need a break, and we're like starting to squabble, and we're, you know, and then finally we'll just burst the bubble, and I'll be like, you can't die, you owe me one hundred forty-seven dollars, you fucking faggot, and then it's better. Everything was better. Oh my god! And the choice to use that terminology in the in that those moments makes it actually so much more beautiful. <laughs> it did. It does strangely. Like it's all the more beautiful because the familiarity between these two gals. I mean, yeah, I, I would watch. I would watch a, a, a mini series about their lives. Uh huh. Give like, me all of it. Lock Give me all in, of it. Lock them in that apartment building. It'd be like Grey Gardens. Oh God! Yes. <laughs> oh my God! But with better eyebrows. <laughs> I mean, I really love the fact that someone was like, "Just take the thickest, blackest pencil you can and just draw them out like Spock." It works. And I got. I got to mention, Rod, Roger. I got to tell you this because she she is in the sequel. I don't know about part three. Or, oh, I don't know about yes. part three or four, but she is in the oh, sequel. Oh yes. Oh, I mean that. I one thing, at least one thing to take away from how they got her, though. I don't know. She's taking care of a baby in the sequel. Can you imagine this broad with I a baby. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand why how they managed to procure. You know, what? never mind. I'm not even going to touch on it. I'm just going to celebrate her in this film for for the performance she gives and how deep she dives into it and you're right those fucking eyebrows she is full on like Cruella de Villing it the entire movie like they're so glaring those eyebrows feel like they're about to attack the screen they're so they're so dark I do also want to say that I've seen her in so many different things and I feel like while this was clearly a lesbian character right the lesbian and the gay dude have this like very you know sassy rapport but I feel like everything that she ever does has a queer element to it because I think she's clearly an ally and has been working with people that just get her. Like she did so many strange roles that are that no one else could step in and do. I mean, she's worked with like Vincent Price. She's worked with everybody, but I feel I, I always I think one thing people forget is that she played that really racist, angry maid in Powder which is a film in and of itself that is, you know, can be talked about. But uh, everything she does is just amazing. All right. my That's my love letter to Susan. Understandable. Understandable. And definitely has, a, I would say, a, a rather prevalent uh, fan base within the queer community for that reason. I would agree. Well, she yeah. calls she calls them into her uh, her apartment to look at her latest painting, which she affectionately calls "Gun with Fruit." Yeah, <laughs> and, and May's response is, "I call it a piece of shit." <laughs> so right away, you know, these two have this kind of friendship where they're just they just like to take jabs at each other because uh, Soli's like, "What do you know? You don't even wear the right clothes." So they, they have this they have this relationship where they can just, you know, throw out insults at each other. Love it. Love it. Yeah. The next morning, uh, Sally comes to collect the rent from Sweet Molly, who uh, does do one little thing. It's pretty noticeable. She covers up a piece of art, uh, rather erotic artwork, with a very, like, basic everyday painting of a fruit bowl. And it's this little detail. It's a, pa- what was it? it's a painting that's Sully, Sully's painting. 
Yeah, right, right, yeah. correct. And she's so proud of it because she comes in. <laughs> so like she has Sully come in and Sully like admires it. She's so pleased with her work. But it's this little detail because you start to learn that uh, a few characters within this film, very few characters actually know the truth about what's going on in Molly's household. Uh, and there's kind of like two alternate lives that she's living. Um Aside from, you know, being a student by day, hooker by night, she's also, you know, lying to a lot of people about what actually what her reality is. And so you get these little details kind of spoon fed to you over the course of the story, eventually leading to a rather large revelation about she, that. Yeah, she has convinced Sully that her mother is an invalid and cannot get out of bed. So she's bedridden, so she can't ever come out to give her the rent check herself. Molly has to go get it from her. And get give her the rent check. So yeah, it's 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 like building this facade of her living in this apartment with her mother, which we find out later on in the film is not necessarily reality. This scene now it cuts from that very wholesome scene to the killer getting this egg, <laughs> which is this is the one of the most uncomfortable scenes i have ever watched in a film i don't know why i was cringing because of the sucking noise he was making but he stabs a hole a small hole in the end of an egg puts it in his mouth and proceeds to suck it like it is a bottle or a tit sucking and it's just this slurp <laughs> while he's but he's like at a making pic- eye contact on the uh, wall which makes it even picture, weirder with yeah. the picture of his mother and him as a ba- as a little boy this is all you really get of him uh, alluding to what his history was as a child. But I do think, and this again harks back to a point that you initially brought up, Roman. I think it's actually a well-played element of uh, giving the audience a pinch of of what his history is. Because this paired with the bit of dialogue earlier on that we brought up between the police officer and the detective talking about their theories of, of what's wrong with this killer, what it is that's causing him to break. They do mention the... the uh, fact that there was probably a history of family um, violence or potentially molestation. And now you have this really striking moment, a uh, strong visual and audio. You're right, Troy, the audio here is, it really pops, uh, which all you get is this moment of, of him with this egg, eventually erupting this egg all over his face and starting to consume the shell, let us acknowledge. Um, and as he glares at this photo of him and his mother, and that's all you get. That's all you get, but it's such a strange and thus striking moment that it gives you so much more of an understanding of who he is. I think the only thing that could have made it better, according to my friend, was that he should have started masturbating with the egg yolk afterwards. But I'm, I don't know how I'd feel. I'd be partially aroused. I'd be like very uncomfortable. Uh, I'd be scared also for the potential uh, for salmonella. Uh, what with this egg issue going on? There's a lot of questions I have about this scene, but it really sticks. It sticks well, he already sucked that. <laughs> he he cleaned out the shell, so I feel like, and rubbed the rest on his face, so you might as well go to yeah, town. It's impress- it, but... an impressive yeah, skill, good for scene. sure. <laughs> uh, the next day, we get a few of the students at, at Molly's school, uh, Rick and some of his buddies, begin to harass poor Molly. And I do want to acknowledge that these guys are probably the weakest actors in the film. Uh, a lot of their dialogue comes out really like big and theatrical. Uh, but um, <laughs> these guys do continue to harass her over the course of the movie. And she, you know, she does shut them down in this moment. She says, I got better things to do. <laughs> she is on her way. But it's clear that Rick wants, he wants to get with Molly and she just does not have time for it. 
He was like the quintessential 80s douchebag too, like yuppie to be. And doesn't he wear like a sport jacket at school? I I was really like, honestly, I've seen this movie a hundred times. And this was the first time I really, his little line about the little razzle dazzle while he's groping his own crotch, like kind of stuck with me. I'm like, why have I forgotten about this? This is like cringy and amazing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. He goes up to her at her locker and he's like, you, you need to find out why they call me razzle dazzle. And he grabs <laughs> his cock. Uh, she slams his hand in the locker, but yeah. he is portrayed as being like the, the, the school stud who gets any girl that he wants. So it especially pisses him off when she declines his advances. So he, he, he gets, he's on a mission. He's on a mission to get this angel slash Molly's pussy. I mean, that's, that's his goal throughout the whole movie. Yes. And when he doesn't get it, he, he, he kind of turns into a, it's like, I'm going to get revenge on this one. Yeah. But little does he know he's messing with the avenging angel. Don't fuck with an angel. Okay. Um, this has a, <laughs> this does lead to a scene, this first scene with Miss Allen, who I do want to really shine a spotlight on because this character is again very progressive writing, and not just in what she what comes from her later, but even in the scene of, with her as a kind of a guidance counselor who's who speaks to Molly in such a a mature kind of adult way. You know, she, she's not talking down to her. She's expressing concern that Molly is not involved in extracurricular activities, but she's, she's definitely trying to like kind of level with her and, and treat her as a, a peer in some ways. And I find that really a refreshing depiction of this kind of character because right off the bat, she's a, a likable presence in Molly's life. She wants to know why Molly has not partaken in any of the extracurricular activities at school. And Molly's like, well, because wh- why does it even matter? I'm on the top of the honor roll. And Miss Allen's like, well, yeah, but there's more to life than getting straight A's. This is when Molly explains to Miss Allen that her mother is an invalid and that she has to go home and take care of her mother after school. So she literally has no time to partake in extracurricular activities at school. And Miss Allen seems pretty okay with this answer. She's like, okay, I'm, I'm so sorry. That's understandable. We, we then go back to the hotel where Crystal's body has been discovered, apparently by Yo-Yo, because he's sitting there crying. The lieutenant approaches him, and Yo-Yo's like, we were supposed to meet up. I She didn't show up, so I came here to look for her. He's distraught. And even in his hand, he has the bloody top that he gave her. So he must have found it in the, I'm assuming he found it in the alley, or did he go in the room and get it? I don't know. It's kind of a weird, don't touch evidence. It's tampering with evidence. Yeah, it's tampering with evidence. That being said, this character of Yo-Yo, for being kind of a sideline character, this guy, every scene he's in, he's fucking great. I mean, he is so believable. And God, you fucking feel for him. Um, This performance here, this little moment where he, where the detective, I'm sorry, the lieutenant approaches him and kind of comforts him in a way while asking him his protocol questions. The performance that Yo-Yo gives is really like, kind of stand out i'm always impressed by him whenever he's in a scene in this film he's also in the sequel fans you hear you hear that (laughs) oh is he yeah he's yeah he is also in the sequel he's a prominent character in the sequel yep i didn't know it right away but when i looked him up he's he's in a, a lot of other he's been in the x files like i recognize him more as an older man in a lot of things but as a young guy well also he's in the Charlie Chapman get up in this one. So he's kind of, you know, the mustache and everything. Uh, but yeah, I, I 
I didn't realize that he was somebody that I was more familiar with in later years. He is. He, he he's great. He's great in this one. He's great in this. He's great in the sequel. Yeah, I'm very impressed with this character. And I do like in the sequel they give him a little bit more to do, uh, which is always great. So May shows up to tell Molly that Crystal has been murdered. And this is the scene, Roger, that you referenced earlier with all the prostitutes standing outside the hotel room demanding justice. Oh, it's they're powerful when they're gathered together. They're a force. They're a movement. A school of um, prostitutes. I do want to acknowledge that leading up to this, the whole sequence of Crystal's hotel room being cleared out by the coroner, all of the, like, it's literally being brought out in, like, small red body bags like little garbage bags because her body is like literally in pieces you don't really you don't see the gore of it but you do see the visual of multiple bags being brought out showing just how crazy this this killer actually is which does lead to the the prostitute revolution uh in which all of these dames gather together and in one of her bigger moments molly does demand justice and she requires that the police do more and the whores are behind her cheering her on it's such a powerful she, moment for molly. she's the norma ray of the prostitutes yep. That evening, Molly is walking with Alana. They're back on the street. Uh, they're talking about Molly's talking about going to he- to Tahiti because that's one of the places Crystal said she wanted to move to. So apparently, Molly is now all gung ho and going to Tahiti. She tells Lana, "Hey, I got some brochures. We can go there in December and get a great deal on Tahiti." And as they're walking across the street, Lana's eyes catch this handsome, dapper gentleman across the street. And she says to Molly, or she says to Angel Molly, she's like, hey, I think I see my down payment. And she walks over to this gentleman. Angel is able to get kind of a a glance, but it's dark. You can't really see he's across the street. And with that, Lana struts off with him. It's no wonder that this guy's racking up a body count so fast because... I mean, he's he's fucking hot. He's hot. Like I would, I would do the same thing. I'd waddle right over and be on his arm. So this guy's getting his job done so quick because the the gals are just drawn to him because he looks so much more normal and attractive than the other bags of meat that are trying to pick him up on a regular basis. <laughs> We've seen some of the people that are picking up these prostitutes. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I with the worst, the worst comments. You know, it's that's that's kind of uh, one thing that I think is amazing about this film is that. All of the men, all the stuff that was written for the men is absolutely supposed to be taken as men are garbage. You know, uh, it's not even a, it's not even subtle. It's everything that they're saying is like, oh God, our society has a real problem here, you know? And I, and I love the fact that uh, they're not even trying to like hide it. Just anything that almost feels like it's, doing the opposite of a male gaze i think especially in the 80s that's so rare you know you've got elm street 2 and you've got this yeah i mean there's not a lot of there wasn't a lot of uh, you know i mean yeah so i do and i think it's kind of highlighted in this particular next scene where angel is studying when this gentleman who seems very polite at first right walks up to her and he's like excuse me ma'am you know you were recommended to me would you like to go and maybe get out of here and have some fun he's being very nice to her and she agrees she takes her back to the she takes him back to the hotel the room that she shares with lana and the door's locked and she's she's knocking on the door and she's like lana you know time's up it's my turn here and then all of a sudden this guy turns into the most annoying obnoxious misogynistic asshole he's like oh can't you come to the door you got something in your mouth (laughs) 
and just making all these horrible comments. Oh, everything he says. Yeah, he's like, yeah. yo, open up. We can have a menage a trois. And Angel's like, you know what? We're going to do this another time. And she turns around to walk away. And he grabs her by the arm. He's like, you're not going anywhere, you little cunt. <laughs> and this is when he's like, you better, you better not be older than 14. Or I'm going to kick you out on your ass. Yeah. Everything was just like, oh, the uh, the other. And also, thanks to closed captioning, I realized that he says menage twat. So I feel like he's, <laughs> yeah, just and he's laughing at his own jokes. And you're just like, as a viewer going, God, please don't sleep with this guy. Please just don't. He makes some lines, especially once they get into the hotel room. Some of the lines he spits out about her age, about you you better be no older than 14. Like when he says that, it's played off so casually. And it obviously like is something she's accustomed to at this point, which like if you step back and really think about what you're watching in this moment is horrifying. You know, like, the, and, and, and it's awful. Yep. I mean, it's terrible. But the fact that they play it off is just a very everyday moment between her and this man. It's 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 strange because it's it's detestable. But at the same time, I can continue to watch the movie and support her character uh, and and sympathize for her character, despite some of these really kind of just disgusting scenarios she gets herself. Well, I do. In. I do appreciate the fact that she does ask him to go clean up before they do anything sexual. Because, yeah, he looks kind of <laughs> so he he goes into the bathroom to clean up and then she's she's getting ready. You know, she's taking off her earrings and stuff, getting prepared. And all of a sudden he comes out of the bathroom, literally like gasping. She's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he, he can't answer. What he does is he leaves, gets in his car and we hear his car squeal away. So, of course, she is curious about what just happened. So she goes into the bathroom and opens the shower curtain and sees Lana's dead body in the shower, all bloody. And of course, she she freaks out. So this is a second one of her close friends to be murdered in the span of what two days. This reveal, it's the buildup is great because you have the slow pursuit as she walks into the bathroom. And then she pulls the curtain open, and it's kind of unclear what you see. But if you if you pause it, you look, you you do notice that her body, Lana's body, is like kind of. Sc- Crunch, scrunched over in the shower, uh, covered in blood. And there is one aspect, it's almost, it's kind of hard to see, it's easy to miss it, but it looks as though it's almost, is her, it, I don't want to say her arm's been removed, but there's an area where like, you can't even tell where her arm is necessarily connected to the rest of her body. Uh, there's an area of like bruising or blood. And I, I'm curious exactly how violent this murder was because you don't get a very clear shot of it, but it looks as though he may have done something to the body. Well, we know he likes to dismember the bodies based on what he did to Crystal. So it's very, yeah. I mean, it, who knows what's exactly. missing from this woman. Uh, th- then we do cut to the shot of the killer standing in this, yeah, this, me- this metal, small metal tub, scrubbing himself with, with what appears to be like a <laughs> harsh scrub brush. And he's just going to town scrubbing his naked body. And like Roger, I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this scene a couple times. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, you know, it's one of those things where I think it, it's a very important scene. It tells us a lot about this character because obviously he feels dirty, for lack of a better word, after committing these murders. So we kind of get a sense of maybe there is a little bit of like strand of remorse 
that strings through him after he does this, where he has to go home and scrub himself so violently because he feels filthy. He feels like he did something wrong. That's kind of what I gathered from it. Again, alluding to what the lieutenant said earlier, he also brought that point up as well. So they do kind of give you a clue towards everything the lieutenant said being actually factual, because the way the scene is handled, though he is looking good during it, it is uh, he's very violently scrubbing himself, and the the lighting from the no vacancy sign just pouring in through the glass. He's bathed in red as the camera very slowly pushes in and pushes out. It's it's another very striking scene with this character who, again, we don't ever hear him say anything, but we do kind of see his mental process as he goes from kill to kill. I always felt like that. Well, that scene always reminds me of the scene in Mommy Dearest where Joan Crawford or Faye Dunaway is washing her hands in the sink or washing her face. And you're like, oh, my God, you're going to burn your face off. It doesn't need to be that hot. But they're just like it's it's like kind of the cliche of mental illness of somebody that's like needs to get it off of them. And they are obsessively compulsively trying to do it to the point of they're going to hurt themselves, you know, and this, this scene always, I'm always like flashing back to, to mommy dearest with this. I don't know if they thought about it, but it definitely is. They lingered on this shot a long time. They did. It goes on quite a while. And he, I was wondering like if he's going to scrub himself bloody because yeah. he's just and he's grunting like in pain he's doing it so hard it's a pretty it's a pretty impactful scene and I, like i said it tells it really shows us a lot about the character however you want to interpret what it is showing us but i like i said i gather that it was just some sort of a, l- a little bit of remorse or feeling dirty for what he's done uh we do cut to the police station Angel is there. She has given this sketch as the best she could which they show the sketch and i mean it I guess it kind of looks like the guy. I don't know. Apparently it looks a lot like him based on what happens here in in the next few scenes. But this is when the Lieutenant is really questioning poor Molly angel about her life choices of of being a, a prostitute. And she's like, you know what? You don't, you don't know me. You have no right to judge me. I'm not doing this forever. And he, he says, you really think you can just quit? You know what happens to washed up whores, which I like, I like, He's, he's not holding back with her. I mean, she needs to hear this. I mean, it's a 15-year-old kid. I like that he's both stern and caring toward her. And fatherly, yeah. Which she needs. Her character deserves to have that at this point. And I hate to keep bringing the sequel up, but he actually plays a very prominent part in the sequel as well. How, how, why would Donna not come, come back for this? It's unfair to all of us. Come on now. I read, the, I, I read IMDb trivia for it because I was curious. I wasn't even going to watch the sequel. I just saw it on Tubi and I was like, oh, and I started playing it and I was just immediately entranced. Although, like I said, Betsy Russell is definitely no Donna Wilkes. Let's just put it out there. But all of the major characters that survived the first film are back in the sequel. But I read on the IMDb trivia that she priced herself out of, they approached her, but she priced herself out. And I I kind of insinuated that she did it on purpose. She didn't want to do it. A shame. A shame. Well, no, not when you see the sequel. It's pretty rough. <laughs> I mean, all, well, also during that time, it was very difficult for women not to get typecast if you're going to do this kind of thing. So I could see why she wouldn't want to do a sequel because then she will forever only be able to do these roles. Yeah. 
Yeah, she would be doing Angel 27 by now probably if she yeah but no he he is an actual prominent part of the first of the sequel and actually is the main cause for everything that happens but yeah she, he's very fatherly to her and she, and she tells him you know you have to understand i'm doing this i have my reasons and i will be able to stop doing it when i want to we do get another scene with you know the the lieutenant drops angel off right in front of where kip carson the cowboy is doing his act may takes her and walks her home along with Kip. I, I do like that we we are we are treated to several scenes of this Kip the cowboy really taking these these two girls under his wings, and you can see that they they do have a special bond. Well, on top of that, I have a, a huge appreciation for the the scenes, the moments between May and Molly, where May actually seems to very much step in as a maternal figure. All of the scenes of her letting Molly rest her head on her feather boa, petting her hair, holding her, escorting her away arm in arm, the the protective instincts, the maternal instincts in May speak so many volumes for this character. Again, who could very much have been made during that, in that era, uh, played off as a parody or a joke. No, she's actually kind of the light of the film, the heart of the film. And she she cares so much about Molly's well-being and taking care of her. And you see it. You see it depicted time after there's, time. There's this scene where the kid is holding a gun to his, I guess it's his lawyer. It's the, it's the executive estate telling him he's not going to go into retirement home. Uh, and Angel and May are able to run him off. And this is when Angel reveals that she's on her way to the morgue to claim the body of Lana because God knows what happens to bodies that are unclaimed. So they go apparently to the morgue to claim the body. And we get a scene with the Lieutenant yelling at them that they had no right to go to the morgue to get this body. Um, And this is when angel does kind of lash out and at him and yells at him. And she's like, you don't have any feelings. You're just a damn cop. So I like that Angel, she stands up for herself. You know, she has she has her moments. Uh, some more big acting choices from Donna here, though. I'll say it. Like, she, she, she's not one to rein it in. But I don't care. I, I still enjoy the character so much, I don't care. I also love May getting that one-liner in where she's like, remind me never to get murdered. And she, like, <laughs> throws her feather boa over her shoulder. Like, ugh. It's so many great little character moments. There's a moment earlier, too, in the scene with, with the... um discussion of the retirement home where the lawyer leans in and says something kind of a uh, cutting towards Molly and uh, May steps in and licks his nose. And I was like, God, like this film is like f- so embracing this character, just letting her do whatever the fuck she wants, whoever the fuck she wants to be. Uh, I love how they just embrace that about her. Absolutely. They let, they, I, I, I don't know if it was completely written this way, but I know that, uh, Dick Sean, the guy who plays that character, he has been uh, a, a a stage performer all his life. He's got like quite a body of of work on his resume, and I have to believe that he isn't too far removed from that lifestyle. Although he does, he did pass away with a lot of kids, but uh, a lot of a lot of men of that era did. So um, it just seemed like. You know, even when he's being sassy, it didn't seem like I've seen straight guys play uh, queer characters and or drag queens. And it always feels a little forced, like they're trying to do the male impersonation of a gay male 
it it didn't feel this way. I loved him when he whips the feather boa, and they added the sound effect of the the whip sound as it hits the dude in the face. Like all of it was just like it. You're our people. It was good. At this point, the lieutenant has become very suspicious of Molly. So he, the next day, waits for her outside of her apartment and follows her to school. And then when she gets there, this is the whole scene with that Rick approaching her, calling his cock a razzle-dazzle or whatever he says to her. Um, (laughs) And she slams his hand in the locker and he's like, you bitch. There's also the whole introduction of the cheerleading squad. <laughs> They're all, all naked. <laughs> like, I mean, they, they must have cleared out a whole porn production company and been like, give us your best girls. Because like you got <laughs> knocker swinging in full bush uh, from all these ladies. And there's like 30 of them. There's so many naked women. Did, okay. Did you notice this? There's they're, they're, they're putting on their cheerleader outfits to go out to the field and, and practice but this one, <laughs> this one that's the one that says like, bye to Molly, like pulls her skirt on without any underwear on. So when she starts, when she runs yeah. out, you see her skirt plopping up and you can see her bare ass. And I'm like, hey, this is a, what high school is this? <laughs> there's no bras. There's no panties. These girls are going to be doing midair splits full, full <laughs> hoo-ha show. And like, it is, it is serious the most like porn pornified depiction of a cheerleading squad I've, I've seen in a major film and then you got little donna wilkes and her you know cardigan and all, all dressed up and like and i'm su- i'm super gay going god that seems like wool and polyester please put on underwear ouch <laughs> it, i mean it looks as though the, it does look as though they're all wearing underwear because they're all very fully grown in full bush it is of the era um but i do appreciate again she's the only individual not sexualized in this moment uh again going against my expectations it's given us the smut it's given us the boobies it's given us the hoo-hoo and the ha-ha but it's not from her it's not from her character which i do i respect and appreciate that yeah we cut to a scene of the killer lifting some weights Hey, I always appreciate these scenes of the close-ups of him working out because he got some muscles and he's he's definitely uh, using them. <laughs> yeah. But then he goes to a porn theater and this porn that's playing looks horrific. The woman <laughs> is homely as hell and she's her big old milk jugs are flopping everywhere. But he is just sitting there relaxed. He has his feet up on the uh, the, the seat in front of him when the usher comes and says... Get your fucking feet off by those chairs. This ain't your fucking office. And when he says that to him, he does recognize his face, which does. Well, I don't know how, because this sketch, like I said, the sketch did not look anything like this guy. I would not look at the sketch and be like, yeah, that's him. I I, I understand that. That is absolutely true. But I- this, this, this part of the film, I'm telling you guys, this is the part. And I was going to ask you about this. I watched this film three times in a matter of two days until I finally caught on. I was super, super confused the first time I, I watched this film, how the police caught him or knew that it was him but it is subtly suggested when this officer's walking around the street he goes to the theater and shows the sketch and the dude's like oh yeah yeah he's in there right now i'm like how how do you know this sketch literally looks like a stick figure with eyes and you're looking at him <laughs> be like yep that's him he's in there i was like oh okay, but what i it, guess i'll go with what it. it does for the the flow of the story plays against my expectations. I'll say that this could have easily just been an ongoing series of murders happening until finally it all culminates and he gets discovered. But instead, halfway into the film, you get this kind of like shift in storyline where the police do arrest him here. 
uh, leading to them going to a lineup where you've got Sweet Molly, a.k.a. A- Angel of the Night, um, who is sitting there like looking at these guys and she's trying to identify them. But she's saying, she's like, it was dark. I can't remember for sure. And it's not until she sees the one guy's, sh- the, the, the actual killer's shoes that she recognizes him. What happens here, the twist here, completely unanticipated the first time I saw this movie. And it takes it in such a different direction for a moment. Uh, I love that this goes like full on like shootout for a second between this guy and the entire like police force within this building. But it is quite a scene. It is an amazing scene, actually. It is. I was quite shocked that it went this direction. What happens is one of the officers comes into the lineup and he, he for, he's a he's a rookie officer. He forgot to take his uh, gun out of his holster before he went into the lineup room. And right as Angel recognizes the killer based on his shoes, they also recognize that this rookie still has the gun. So the officer's like, you know, the lieutenant gets on the speaker and is like, hey, can the officer that has the, you know, that just came in, please exit the room. But right away, the fucking killer grabs the gun and starts blowing away, blowing the cops away, like shoot, literally blowing them away. He shoots the glass. So he does get a glimpse of uh, Angel. He sees that it's her that is identifying him. And then, yeah, he gra- he runs out of the, um, he runs out of the interrogation room and he goes, shoots all the cops that are <laughs> behind their desk, grabs some poor lady as this reception is brought, just looks on. I don't know if you guys notice her. She just stands yep. there just like <laughs> she slumps at the very end. I feel like this movie is uh, this scene is a really great depiction of well, for filmmaking, it's a really important moment because up until now, you've always felt like the cops are dealing with this. And it's only when you dismantle your support system that it becomes even more threatening to the viewer. Because otherwise, you could have spent this whole movie where it's like a sort of chase movie. And that could be fun in a theater, but it's not really a rewatch type of thing. But as soon as the the, the hero, the heroine is like on her own and the cops can't help her because he's out and half the crew is dead now, it becomes a little bit more exciting because you're like, she's absolutely in danger. The cops aren't going to jump out of the bushes and save her. So this is for me where the whole movie changes. Yeah, it does. It does take a definite shift in tone for sure. And it adds some really well-placed action. I'm, I I wouldn't necessarily think this is something I would want from this sort of a film. This kind of a big shootout. I'm normally looking for people to get, I don't know, gutted, beheaded, yeah. <laughs> cut up. And Troy, I know you're on the same page. We're, we aren't normally ones to lean towards guns. But this is quite a violent sequence. And it adds a really nice push of action that goes on for quite a bit. Yeah, I did not mind this twist at all. I actually thought it was quite ballsy um, and unexpected. You know, yeah, we've talked about it. I'm really not a fan of gun, a gun in horror movies, but I feel like this really at its surface is not a horror movie. So I did not mind it. And it just it was a like you said, it was a welcomed ballsy twist that I did not see coming. So I really had to give it kudos for doing something so unexpected because most films in this era would have just most films from this era are just like cat and mouse movies the entire runtime you know the police are right always one step behind the killer until the end this one the killer actually gets <laughs> takes many of them out and gets away um and they have there's no sort of consequence immediate consequence for his action uh 
even the lieutenant, he takes Ma, he takes Angel Molly home that that day after this happens, and he's like, "God damn!" He's like, "I fucked up big time." And he does mention this is the second time something like this has happened, but we don't really go into any detail about what the first one was. He walks her inside. He goes inside with her, and he basically confronts her. He's found out everything about her. He knows that she's only fifteen. He knows her real name. Uh, he wants to know why is an honor student working as a prostitute. I want to talk to your mother. It is revealed now because he basically barges his way into the mother's room and it's empty that Molly is living by herself. She has no mother that's living there. There's no invalid mother. There's no father. She's by herself. He goes into her room, asks her where her mother is, and he give, she gives him this note that she is able to recite without even reading it. So it gives us an indication that she has read this note many times. Her mother left her. Left her for a man, went to New York, left her a $100 bill and a note. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because of the monologue she gives about this. I know. But yes, go on. <laughs> but going off that, Roman, the monologue she gives, I have to say also probably her strongest acting in the film okay to be in my opinion yeah i think when you think of how big she gets at times the way she recites this the emotion behind it um i actually find it to be a really kind of a heartbreaking moment when you think of it being a 15 year old girl going through this describing this it's a terrible story which is why i'm laughing i'm like the mother is just like i got a man i'm out and your 13 year old girl is left here's a hundred dollars in a dollar bill here's a hundred dollars for an apartment you can't afford in a private school you can't afford peace i'm out that was just what so the fact that she ends it with here's a hundred dollar bill i just i do burst out laughing and she left her three years ago so molly was 12 when she started prostituting Mm. and the the lieutenant is even like you've been doing this since you're 12 years old and she's like yeah it was easy i just put on some sexy clothes and some high heels and i went out and made a living (laughs) (laughs) he's like jesus christ god that's so sad i mean oh my lord and like oh when you think about what this girl's saying and then on top of it it's the the mentality up to this point when you're watching this movie and you don't know her full story you've got this kind of judgment towards what she's doing and not saying that it's any less bad what she's doing but at least the way the story is structured that manages they manage to embed this level of sympathy within you uh, just seeing how desperate this girl has been to survive. And she says, she's like, what, what instead do I give myself over to the government and let them throw me into uh, ho- uh, foster homes or, or clinics or whatever it may be, wherever I end up, do I go with that instead? I have no hope then at least this way. I know that I can do what I need to do to get my education, to ensure that at least I can have a normal life. Like it's the closest to selling me on a movie about child prostitution (laughs) that that you're going to get. Like, I'm never going to be like, that was the right choice, but at least here I can be like, God, that poor fucking girl. I can't even imagine how shitty her life has been. Well, and she mentions that she's only doing it until her father comes back. And that's another kind of heartbreaking moment. Her father left her nine years ago, and she legitimately thinks that at some point he's coming back for her, and that once he does, she can just leave this life behind. And the lieutenant is even like, "Girl, what is wrong with you? Like, why he's been gone for nine years? What makes you think he's going to come back?" And she says, and it's just like I said, it's very sad. She's like, "I know he's going to come back." Sad. 
It is. And he, he says, you know what? You stay off the street tonight, stay in, and he's not going to turn her in. And I thought that was a nice little, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, you know what I mean? This is a 15 year old girl out prostituting herself where when a serial killer is out there, but you, you do get the sense then that he has made some connection with her and he really feels sorry for her. Um, and obviously she's, she's doing, I hate to say that, but she's doing well for herself. She's able to pay for this apartment. She's able to pay for this private expensive school. Um, she seems to have a good head on her shoulders. Why ruin it by throwing her in foster care, you know, into the state system that's probably going to fuck her up because we've all heard horror stories about that. And I'm not saying being a prostitute's any better, but I'm justifying it from his perspective, you know? Well, then I I love the fact that it's cut to her on the street again. He's like, don't go (laughs) out. You're going to die. And it's like, oh, now she's even more out than before. Look at that dress, you know? So she's not playing around. I loved it. Oh, I I like this little getup she has on that little yellow, like tight little <laughs> thing she's wearing. Yeah, she's out on the street again. We we cut to the killer cutting his hair. We just like I said, the film just gives us a lot of these random little shots of the the, the killer doing various things that are odd. No dialogue. He starts cutting his hair and then shaving his head in the mirror. He's trying to evade the cops, and I do like that we start to see his, basically his master plan kind of unfolding and culminating towards what is going to eventually become the finale. But this this dude literally just took out half of police force, right? Do you not think the manhunt for this guy would be would be pretty massive? Oh, I'm sure, but it's also the 80s. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I guess that's my explanation. It's the 80s. Like people just operated differently then. We didn't have social media, so I think. I mean, that's that's the whole point of seeing him. You know, full on shave his head down. I, if I were him, I would get like a fake mustache, maybe an eye patch. I don't know, something a little more uh, discreet. You know, uh, just shaving the head really doesn't do much because I'm pretty sure I remember that the drawing of him didn't even did it reflect hair. It didn't I have think hair. It, no, so it just looks exact. It's still the same, <laughs> the same face, the exact same face. Did you? I don't know if you noticed maybe on the second viewing, but they foreshadow the Hari Krishna group hideout from the very moment you meet him. He's always hearing them outside his window. Um, you know, they show him on the street and everything, but. Yeah, I I kind of thought he looked a lot better with the shaved head. I wasn't buying this he's hot thing until that happened, and then I was on Team Killer. <laughs> Team Killer. It was all right. I hear it. I yeah. hear that for sure. Uh, I like that after praying, Molly takes her gun. <laughs> like Molly is Molly is at this church praying, and then she takes to the streets with her gun. Was well, there's this there's the scene where she meets May for lunch, and she's like, "I'm hungry," and this waiter like very mysteriously brings over this kfc box and she gives them like a bunch of 20s for it and we're like that is okay it's the 80s kfc did not cost 60 bucks and he she opens the, the kfc box and it's a gun yeah it's real quick to the point the uh the waiter looks very mysterious he's like looking around like making sure nobody's watching uh it's a very brief scene and i you're right i did totally skip past this uh it's but, the, but she yeah but th- then she does go to the church and pray yeah she does she goes to praise and then she takes to the streets and there's this moment where she's like walking down like the aisle of the church with like again that really like <laughs> empowering 
music playing. Like, it's such like a, a strange tone shift. But she's a woman on a mission. It made me think of that movie with Jodie Foster where she... T- the Akeem? No, the one where Jodie Foster just takes... Oh, the, <laughs> the brave one. The brave one. Like, I feel like I'm watching, like, the pre the prequel to the brave one where Jodie Foster's just out shooting criminals. Like, and uh, I could have used a little more. A little more of Angel just as a vigilante on the streets, just shooting people. Well, watch the sequel then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But I do like that night, though. And this is when, like, shit goes downhill quickly for poor Angel. Because who just happens to be cruising the boulevard that evening? Fucking Rick and his dopey friends. Oh, this, this, this was the hardest scene of the movie for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, they see her, they pull up to her, abduct, they abduct, let's be clear, they abduct this girl from the street, they pull her into the car and literally kidnap her, <laughs> take her to a back alley, and they're going to bang her, they're like, we're going to fuck you, and she's like, let's, please use a condom, I'm going to get pregnant, and he's like, tough shit, we don't use condoms, <laughs> and the one dude's like, uh, maybe we should, we don't know what the slut has. These were the nicer lines of the scene, too. Oh, yeah. Man. This is yeah. A, this, a rough scene. I like that these guys are going to take a, a pause from their raping to, like, let her get condoms out. Though. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so they let her, like, reach into her purse. Of course she brandishes the gun. She shoots through the window. They all get out and run, and she makes um, she makes Rick piss himself, which is, like, kind of some comeuppance because he's such a shitty character, especially since he was about to, you know, gang rape this poor girl. Uh, but she does get control of the situation, which I appreciate. One thing we skipped, Troy, I just want to take a moment to shine a light on this moment because it's one of my favorites in the film. Prior to this, as she, you know, purchased this gun, she turns to Kip to learn how to fire it. And, <laughs> and you get a tour of his, um, like, his living situation, which is an abandoned building, but with an unusually well-decorated, like, western motif bedroom that looks like it looks actually quite nice i was very surprised and he proceeds to take her through a series of lessons in which they shoot mannequins and you do find out this this man is operating guns with actual bullets this whole time you've thought it's all been bb's but no this man has full access to firearms and ammo which is seriously problematic because there's one point where this man is like talking about all of his friends who are all dead and it's clear like he's completely disassociated from reality yet he has two operating firearms <laughs> at all times it's just like it seems like something this man should not have but i did love I love the scene where he's like teaching her how to fire a gun. I, I love that. Again, he's taking her under his wing. He's caring about her in a strange way. Yeah, absolutely. After Rick pisses himself, she does. I love this little jab she makes at him. She's like, Hey Rick, why don't you come back and see me sometime when you're toilet trained? <laughs> Angel's a bad bitch. She's a bad bitch. Yeah. Well, the, but the next day at school, what has happened? Rick fucking goes and tells Miss Allen. He tells everybody she's she's in the locker room and all these big boob topless girls are like, did you hear what Rick said? He said that he gang banged uh, Molly last night and that she's a hooker down on the boulevard. <laughs> oh, it's too bad. I liked her. And yeah. Then, yeah. And then, yeah. Then he goes and tells Miss Allen and she doesn't believe him, but he takes her to his to Molly's locker and they open it up and they see that, that she has the gun in her trapper keeper next to a next to a 
ruler and like why did you put that in your in your binder next to a protractor like what what does one have to do with the other and then to top it off you've got you know you've got her in the midst of a breakdown because her whole secret is being revealed and as she's weeping fleeing the school campus that fucking lanky ginger man what wayne is that his name Wayne, I, I was just gonna say this oh, is my favorite Lord, scene. He's yes. like, Molly, I I have twenty three dollars. <laughs> I've been saving forever. And she runs off like bawling, and he looks like, "What? Did yeah, I is that mean? enough?" To like, take he looks you so out? confused as to why she would decline this offer. I don't understand this character. Oh my god. Oh, uh, Wayne's gonna need a Wayne's gonna need a lot more than twenty three dollars for me to touch. He him, is let me rough, tell you that. rough looking, rough looking. Word. Uh, Molly finds the lieutenant at a on a diner patio, and they get to share actually a lovely bonding moment overlooking the city uh, as she confides in in him about the volume of men that she slept with. <laughs> she, hundreds, yeah, hundreds. I, I mean, I get. I'm sure. I'm sure. And and at fifteen. Imagine by the time she's twenty, like God damn, that vagina is gonna be dragging after her. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's got to, she's already got to be like the Holland Tunnel. Like that girl is just like from that point of development, that thing is broken. Oh my god, you are killing me right now. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm not telling you about my high school years. I'll tell you that much. Hey, don't you preach to the choir. Listen. Okay. <laughs> in the high school. So like, actually within the building were problematic enough to begin with. Okay. But yeah. Uh, so there's quite a, <laughs> there's a lovely little bonding moment where they embrace here. But he, he looks really uncomfortable when she's hugging him. And I'm, I'm wondering if I couldn't, I couldn't gather um, if he's looking uncomfortable because he's hugging her. He's like, very he very hesitantly actually gives into her embrace and then as they're standing there he's like easy kid easy kid and i i I was interpreting it two different ways either like he's really uncomfortable because he thinks she's coming on to him or he's uncomfortable because he is like getting horny it did it did all it wasn't quite clear, but I I really figured it was supposed to be the moment where you realize that she has broken him into being not a buttoned up cop and that he actually feels for this kid. That's why he didn't turn her into child services or whatever. So I don't think there was a sexual thing. Cause you saw the way he kind of patted her. Like, I'm not used to this. I'm used to everything being behind a badge and no emotion, but it did, it did cross my mind. Like, wait, is that what's going on here? It, it really wasn't clear direction. No, and I hadn't watched. I'd never seen this before, so like my first time viewing, I caught on to that. I'm like, okay, you know, after after her just telling him she slept with a hundred guys and like she's you know a sex a sex pro and all that. I'm like, okay. So let's see. Oh, this is this is perhaps my favorite scene in the entire film. Sal, Sally, and May playing this cribbage game. <laughs> <laughs> Same. The chemistry here. It's just off the charts. <laughs> these two, I, I would have loved to have seen the behind the scenes of them filming these moments because it seems like they just had themselves a fucking time. Like these two dames are having a blast. I love this. The, scene. the, the cheating at what are they playing? What are they? I think it's cribbage. Okay. All right. Yeah. This whole scene is pure personality. The point where she's like, how fucking dare you? <laughs> I know. I love that part. Sully, well, Sully's blowing smoke in, in, in May's face purposely. And May makes a comment about her breath stinking. And Sully b- b- blows this huge br- uh, 
cloud of smoke in May's face to the point where she has to turn and cough. And when she turns to cough, Sully quickly takes the peg out of the cribbage board and moves it up about three spaces. Uh, just at the nick of time, May sees this and says, what was that? She's like, what? She's like that. You took this peg and you moved it from here to here. That's not very nice. That's cheating. <laughs> and Sully's like, how dare you? How fucking, fucking dare, dare you? <laughs> <laughs> you fucking cunt. It's, and, and this they just start, argument keeps going. It keeps growing. Well, then Miss <laughs> Allen shows up. Miss Allen shows up. And she's like, hello. And Sully's like, hold your goddamn britches. And she finally goes to answer, to figure out what Miss Allen wants. And I, oh my God, now talk about another scene <laughs> that I fucking love. And she cut, she goes at her for the jugular. It's amazing. Cause I was so out of character for this little, you know, goody two shoes lady. Well, I think they made you, they made you think you were going to get one thing from this character. And then the moment that Sully really like starts insulting Miss Allen, she won't take, she won't have it. And she grabs her by the shirt. And she's like, listen, fuck face. And she's like, I worked for the city for 15 years. And she just, she starts to just go off on her. And Sully is just like, so taken aback that she just gives her the key. Yeah, Sully's trying to explain to her you can't go see, you know, because she's an invalid. She's, you can't go see Molly's mom. She's an invalid. She can't answer the door. And Miss Allen's like, well, give me the key. Uh, she's like, uh, I can't just give you the key to someone's apartment. You have to wait till, you got to wait till Molly gets home. She's like, I don't got to do anything. And she grabs her by, by the by the shirt. It's like, listen, fuck face. And, and yeah, Sully gives her the key. And I love <laughs> Miss Allen's like, oh, well, thank you. She turns very kind again. She's like, thank you. I appreciate that. And then Sully turns around. She's like, God damn, the mouth on that fucking bra. <laughs> oh, my oh, my God. There are so many one-liners and right? greatly, like just perfectly delivered bits of dialogue from all three of these characters. This yeah. entire movie is quotable start to finish. It is, yeah. if nothing else, a wonderful drinking movie to just be like, what the fuck? I'm using that line forever now. Great. In the meantime, May has heard this and she rushes to Molly's apartment to to pretend to be Molly's mother. So when Miss Allen gets there, May answers the door. And it's like, hi, I'm 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 Molly's mother. And you can tell right away Miss Allen's like, yeah, okay. But they do bond. They do bond. I like the moment that they bond. I think the moment they bond is one of my probably one of my top favorite moments from this film because it, again, not what you would expect, uh, not the route you would expect this this scene to take, but so quickly they like click the two these two characters really click and by the end of it you've got miss allen asking for where may purchased her dress like i love it she's like you can tell like miss allen somebody who's seen shit and she is not phased by anything queer she's not phased by anything like that at all and she responds so warmly to may and they if anything i would have liked to have seen those two characters get another scene or two together in the meantime, the, the the Harry Krishna group has been are walking down the street doing their chant, and the officer that is stationed outside of uh, Molly's apartment notices that one of them sneaks out of the lineup and runs into the house. So he goes and follows. Obviously, this isn't a good thing. Miss, uh, as Miss Allen leaves, we do see that the officer that went in and chased after the runaway Harry Krishna is now dead in the hallway. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that officer is Collins from the, the opening of the film with the ice cream cone sequence. So it is kind of a sad moment because he was 
even even in a small amount of time on camera, even he was really played quite well. I, and yeah, likable. yeah, he was very yeah. excited that um, Lieutenant was giving him the opportunity to get off the street and actually do something, you know, detective yeah. wise. And yeah. then he gets murdered. And this whole moment here really does start to launch into what builds towards being the finale. Uh, and I've got to say, when it comes to the terms of finale, this film delivers in spades. So much happens over the last 10, 15 minutes of this film. Whoo, man. So much. Starting with May getting ready to leave the apartment when she opens the door and who is there? The killer. Hare Krishna. The Harry yep. Krishna killer with the knife. And we are treated to quite a, a extensive fight scene between these two and it seems legit right like it was really well executed super i have that note super well executed actually and we realize that may is not a goddamn pushover at all i mean may kick some ass spitting punching all of it everything hits her with a hits hits the killer with a potted plant i mean there's a lot going on unfortunately the killer does get the best of May at the end by throwing him onto Molly's bed. It's a canopy bed, and the the um the canopy collapses on the two of them. And all you hear is May say, "No, what are you doing?" And then all of a sudden, you see that the killer through the sheet is stabbing May, and the sheets are just getting soaked more soaked with blood. I thought it was very well done. Um, a very effective death scene, even though you don't see it, you see like the silhouette of it happening under the sheet. I think that made it that much more uh, effective, honestly. And the fact that they gave him, I mean, like, again, let us emphasize the length of this struggle. Um, it is a long fight and May gives it her all. I mean, you literally room to room to room, this entire apartment is destroyed as these two brawl. And finally, finally, when the killer just manages to get a one up on May, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's extremely devastating. I mean, like for this character to meet this demise and then to top it off, what follows after that, the moment oh. between, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> the moment, like which you brought we brought up earlier but like from since sincerely this this scene between these two is heartbreaking heartbreaking yeah, be- Sully hears the commotion and runs upstairs to the apartment and finds it all in disarray and she goes into the bedroom and does find May laying there uh dying of these stab wounds may is still alive, but barely. And the first thing she says when Sully comes over to her is like, Oh, just my fucking luck. The last fucking thing I'm going to see in my life is your fucking ugly face. <laughs> and they have some, they have some cute banner. I mean, and it, it really is a sad, sad moment. And I was very much hoping that may did not die. Yeah. Have you ever seen a scene like that, that you are legitimately sad about? And also, find it hilarious i can't think of any moment that does this i can't i can't either no because it was fucking hilarious the stuff they say it is hilarious i mean and and it you know sully's like yo you can't die i mean you owe me 127 dollars you fucking faggot that's the line (laughs) that you mentioned Uh, but but then but then she does get really emotional she calls her a gorgeous a gorgeous broad you gorgeous broad and then when when may finally dies sully lets out this just heart-wrenching heart-wrenching cry of anguish yep 
it's 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 honestly a scene that people really everyone needs to see because I've never seen a scene like this that plays both. It's so weird. It is a, an amazing study of a relationship between two older queer individuals from that era because of the like the kind of like the cutting derogatory sense of humor, but also the intense appreciation for one another. You can like there's there's these two elements to their relationship. One is kind of very cruel, but comedically so. And another one is so familial, like so protective. And it is like it cuts you deep, you know? Yep. Yeah, but May is dead. I was I was kind of hoping she'd pop up in the sequel and we find out she really didn't die, but nope. Yeah, nope. May, May bit it. It sucks. Molly gets home um, with the lieutenant and Sully says, do not go in there. You don't want to see it. But Molly's pretty smart. She figured out what, what's happened. So she takes uh, Sully's gun and runs out of the house and is now this bitch is on a mission to get revenge. She's walking down bullet, the boulevard, gun very noticeable in hand stalking to find this fucking asshole killer. And I love all the reactions of people trying to flee from her as she's storming through them. <laughs> yeah. And just so happens the killer, she walks by this group of the Krishnas and the killer is still with them. And he sees her walk by recognize her and starts to follow her with the knife. Luckily, as he pops out his switchblade and is getting ready to stab her right there on the fucking street, Yo-Yo sees and it's like, Molly, watch out. And what Lee, what, what, what this leads to is a shootout. <laughs> Molly's shooting at everything she can to try to get this fucker. He's running down the road. I mean, this, this whole scene is just batshit crazy. Right? Yeah. But if we're going to talk about good, good, good action sequences, I mean, like, l- listen, starting from her strutting down that strip to begin with, like, yeah, it's, it's she cuckoo bananas at this point, but she is a dame on a fucking mission. She has a vendetta. Um, her mother figure was just killed. You twist her an extent, like when you think about that, you know, like what that probably triggers within this girl, uh, because of the caring that she had with this character. So, like, she is on a fucking mission and she's snapped. So when he does finally make himself present, tries to attack her, and you know, and obviously things go awry when Yo Yo calls it out. Um, and he jumps into the back of the truck and she starts firing. Like she's literally just out for blood, and and. This whole final sequence, like if we're going to talk about solid endings and action sequences in general, this delivers on levels I don't think you would anticipate when you see that fucking poster. You see that poster and the last thing you're going to think is you're going to get a a solid series of sequences like this. Amazing shootout sequences, suspense, tension, a great chase through, through the strip. I mean, this builds to such an emotional... An impactful conclusion. Uh, and I think this movie just ends on a bang. Literally. Because she's shooting everybody. <laughs> yeah. that the, the moment where she's like. There was that confusion over. He does he gets in the car. Someone pushes him out of the car. She's shooting through the car. People are running away. It was a lot going on. And it, and it doesn't stop until the end. Which is awesome. I love the fact, I love how fast she can run in those high heels, too. She's just <laughs> darting down the, the, the sidewalk in these little high heels. I, my ass would be falling trying to walk in them. But she's dar- she's chasing him. He's he's scared of her. He's he's running away. I mean, there's a scene where they get up on, it's like this, is it a parking garage roof or something? And somehow he gets a gun and he starts shooting at her while she's shooting at him. And then uh, the cowboy kit comes up and is going to shoot, but his guns don't fire. And he kit gets shot, 
and we think he's dead. Well, there's that one point where literally the pursuit is the killer being chased by Molly, being chased by the lieutenant, who's being followed by Kip on a, with a motorcycle gang. Like <laughs> Kip is like on the back of a motorcycle. Like like it is so. There's so many layers. So many people are involved with this finale. Random people on the street. So it's just so much going on and it keeps your attention and it keeps you crossing your fingers that the, the characters you come to like, which there are several. I mean, if we're going to talk about likability, a cast, a likable cast that you want to root for, this movie gives you tons of them. And luckily yep. some of them do make it is the good thing. Cause you're right. Kip does get shot, but he says, go save Molly. Yeah. And what ends up happening is the killer runs into a dark alley. Molly gun drawn goes in after him. And he jumps out of the shadows and grabs her as just as the lieutenant comes in the alley as well, throws her at the lieutenant and is going to shoot them both when all of a sudden Cowboy Kit shows up and shoots the hell out of this guy. He has to shoot him, what, 20 times? <laughs> it goes. But what a fucking badass like reveal of Kip being at the end of that alley and much similar to earlier when he was teaching her how to fire the mannequins. He has that very standard Western pose, double gun in it, just bang, 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 bang. And killer's body is just fling it all over. It's such a badass moment. It makes Kip look like such a fucking badass, which his character deserves. Uh, and it, it takes the killer out. It really is like a phenomenal conclusion. It definitely calls back to the fact that he, as a character was always like talking about all these, you know, famous people he worked with and all these great action shots he did. And everyone's like, Oh, I, I didn't know that was real. You know, everyone thought he was some senile old man and here he is like kicking ass. So we do get the killer's only line of dialogue throughout this whole film it comes right before he dies mm -hmm. and all he says is it hurts and then he dies and then it's the end of the movie they walk out hand in hand in the alley and the credits roll over that that sensible pop song that i really like <laughs> let's go back to that final line real quick though like i the, the choice to have that be the, the only two words he says it hurts i think really encompasses a lot more than the the bullets that just went through his body uh i mean i think you know right at the beginning of the movie the, one of the first things the lieutenant said was that they suspect that this guy wants to be caught um and is aware of what he's doing and you do get while you don't get a lot of the killer uh in the sense of backstory you do get quite an idea that he is struggling through this experience and suffering um and so in a way i'm shocked that this movie yet again managed to like throw me on my ass when it comes to my expectations but it makes me f strangely feel something uh, as this guy bleeds out and dies feel that he was really suffering despite the horrible things that he was doing um I, I i'm shocked this movie managed to do that for me yet it does i i, I really feel like this is an excellent example of a low what really skilled people can do with a very, very low budget film because clearly the writing, the directing, the editing, everything about this movie was done by people that know what they're doing. And it just can elevate a film like this that you look at this poster, or maybe you start the film and you assume like, this is going to be some schlock shit, you know, or this is going to be for, you know, your typical early 80s movie made for dudes that just want to watch like boobs and guns and stuff. And then you quickly realize it is none of those things. It, it's better. Oh, listen, at the end of the day, I'm going to say right now that 
joke about it all we may want to because of the context. At the end of the day, this is a, a good fucking movie. And it's a good movie because it keeps me enthralled beginning to end. And sure, yeah, there are some Sunday morning kind of uh, uh, like <laughs> the th- what it feels sometimes like I'm watching this in the middle of like my sex ed class. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, but like uh, that that seems very intentional because it uses that to also develop a world of characters that we genuinely care about. And at the end of the day, this manages to draw me in more than most films I can think of uh, because it offers a cast of individuals who they really took some chances with. They took chances having such overtly queer characters. They took chances uh, having the story take some of the twists and turns that it does. Uh, But you could tell they believed in the material because at the end of the day, I say that too much, because in the end, in the end, this film is immensely entertaining. I mean, I I enjoyed it beginning to end. I did too. And I can say that this film is the perfect example of the fact that good characters or characters in general can make or break a script that might not be the strongest. The script of the film is fine. What makes this film work when it shouldn't work is the fact that the characters in this film are so likable and feel so three-dimensional and you're immediately connected to them. And I can forgive then a lot of the little things that might not be, you know, up to par or might be problematic with the film. I totally ignore because the characters in this film are so well done. Yeah. And all the hero, the the weirdos end up being the heroes, even though May dies, she died a hero. Like every, all of them were, uh, they, they definitely ended on top in terms of your takeaway from them. This film was not what I expected. I, I, I had seen the cover art for this film many, many times. I don't think you could have grown up in the 80s, yeah. <laughs> you know, 90s without seeing it. And I avoided it. I, I honestly avoided this film because I thought it was just, oh, I don't want to watch that. Why would I want to watch a movie about a girl that's a hooker at night? Yeah. I, I did not know it had the horror element, the slasher element that ran through it. I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Some of the best characters I've seen in quite some time, Sully and May, especially. I just had a great time. And I mean, I, I liked the film so much that I was intrigued to start watching the sequel <laughs> and made it all the way through, even though I mean, it's going to tell you the sequel exists, part three exists, part I, the sequel is nowhere near as endearing as this first film. I don't think you could capture the that magic again, even though they brought the, the the same, a lot of the same actors back, it just is, it's lacking something. It definitely felt without the May character that it did feel like it was just leftovers. They, tr- they tried to replace the May character with that Johnny glitter guy, oh, like this flamboyant right, yeah. gay guy who every time he comes on the screen, he throws glitter in the air. Lord. And it's just <laughs> it's not, not, the, not same the same at all. And the villains are just ridiculous and it's, and I'm sorry, I keep saying it, but Betsy Russell loved her in cheerleader camp, but she just is not, it's not the same angel. Like it's like she didn't even watch the first one. But this movie is very much lightning in a bottle. And I don't think you capture something like this twice in general, like try as you may make a sequel all you want. Uh, It was literally just a, a, everything the the right characters the right performers 
the right levels of weirdness. Like what really sells this movie for me is it is it is weird. This movie is weird, but I'm weird. And I, I appreciate weird characters. I appreciate weird cinema. I appreciate cinema that takes that takes risks, that takes chances. This for the era this came out of, this took a lot of risks. And one thing all three of us can relate to with the projects that we've been related to and that we've worked on, it's all about fucking taking risks, doing something that other people have not done, and touching on material that maybe is a little like uncommon or kind of taboo. This did that. And sometimes it's strange. And sometimes it doesn't totally hit the nail on the head. But God, when it does, it sucks you in. And I, I had such a blast watching this again. Yeah, I would say, yeah, huge thumbs up for me. I could see myself watching this film again. Especially with friends. If you can sit down with people, it's even more fun. I'm so glad you guys love this movie. I, I've just done nothing but talk about this. Tyler and I love to talk about Angel. Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Oh. We covered that one oh, we a love long it. time ago, but we love that one too. Yeah, like all the queerness in these movies, like I feel like and Nightmare 2, all those types of things that maybe had them all packed in there didn't play well at the moment they came out. But then now everyone's like, wait a second, that's what makes movies great. Not necessarily queerness, but like that you actually love these characters because otherwise, how many times can you watch the same soulless slasher movie over and over again? It gets boring because it's like a whodunit. You know what happens. But in these movies, you're not watching them for what happens. You're watching them to be with those people. And and I'm and I love this so much. One thing I I wanted to mention is uh, the Dick Dick Sean character of May. The actor Dick Sean, actually, I knew he had passed away just a couple years after this movie in 1987, but I didn't know what happened. So I, I looked it up this morning and I was kind of shocked. He's He was a stage actor. He'd done millions of films with everyone you've ever known, but he was also doing these like one man shows. And apparently in his show, he had this gimmick where he would just lie on the stage very still and then deliver a lot of stuff. It was like monologues and things, but this, which I don't quite understand, but apparently his whole thing was lay on the stage. Don't move until the audience is very uncomfortable. And that's how he died. <laughs> he had a heart attack oh, while wow. doing this. And so people didn't know he died right away. They were like, is this part of the show? Um, oh my God. That audience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he really gave them, yeah, what a surprise. Oh my god, that poor I mean, that poor audience, but also that poor man, but he really the jokes on them. Like he yeah. he went out with with quite a bang. And also he was considered. quoted like the year before as saying, you know, I I'm tired of playing for all these, you know, uh Vegas type people and shows or they he had some funny quote. I'm going to butcher it, but essentially he was like I should be playing at colleges and stuff so that at least if I die on stage, I'll know that I'm it's it's in front of like intelligent people who grasp what I'm doing. And that's exactly what happened. So kind of amazing and terrible, just like that scene with Susan Tyrell. So interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's one of the best parts of the film. And it, like it's like we've like we said, just hammer it home again. It is so refreshing. It was so refreshing to see these queer characters portrayed so positively in, in a in a time coming out of a time period that you would not expect that at all. 
Uh, you got, I got to give the film major props for that. But yeah, I mean, loved it. Thank you for suggesting it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking time out of your, your I'm sure, busy schedule to come on and talk to us about the film because I, I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, Roman, you were, were such a joy to have. We really appreciate your presence on our show. Um, you added a lot of insight to this, too, knowing how much you love this film. Uh, so, so thank you for that. Uh, and real quick. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's been awesome talking to both of you. You're both wonderful. I love it. We'll always celebrate everything you're working on and everything you're doing. So take a quick second just to remind our listeners, like social media across the board, anywhere you'd want to be followed or acknowledged, and any films or any works you have out right now that you want eyes on, take a second for a platform. Well, you can always find me and Tyler through Scream Queen on all platforms, Um, but I feel like I'm probably the most responsive on Instagram and I, and I like to go by the name Dracula Spectacula. So um, easy to find if you go through Scream Queen, I'm connected through there. And uh, I don't know, social media has been, um, I, I kind of, I ebb and flow with it. You know, when I get really busy, like right now I'm kind of juggling a lot. So I sporadically on there, uh, but I will respond to stuff and it's awesome. In terms of projects, um <sighs> There's actually an experience that I had last year that sort of parallels this movie, which we are writing into a film um, with a lot of the same characters and, and similar scenes. I, unintentional. But after watching this again today, I was like, holy shit. I just lived through a lot of this. Uh, I can't really go into more of it, but it is going to be a queer thriller. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, so that's that's what's in the works right now. And um, I'm actually glad that we just watched this because now I'm like, oh, wait a second. This is helping me kind of tie up some story points that I needed to work out. So um, I really enjoyed it. And I'm so glad that you guys liked it because a lot of times I, you know, the things I like can maybe go over other people's heads. So um, I feel like we're we're a bonded trio now. Oh my God. I'm right there with you. This is my kind of weird. This is my kind of cinema. And uh I, I had a blast revisiting this film because I had seen it a couple years ago with friends, and it, it was absolutely an experience to remember. But I also think I lost some of the the specifics and some of the details and some of the character moments that really watching it alone this time around, I was able to kind of bask in a bit, and I appreciate that. And I thank you for bringing it to my attention again because this is a film that needs to be viewed. I would absolutely say it needs to be seen. Amazing. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. So with that, the episode comes to an end and we thank you for tuning in. Remember Apple podcasts, leave a, leave us a review five stars, preferably check out the Patreon and real quick as we're going long on this one, but real quick uh, next week, our episode uh, we are covering the 19. I want to say, what is it? 87. I don't have it. don't have my notes in front of me, but it's the film dolls. A, nice. a fucking classic. It is a fucking classic. I love a that movie. A fucking classic. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to chat about it. I'm excited to listen to this, to be honest, because there are a few moments in this where we got caught up into the sheer energy of it all. But I know this is going to be a great episode. And listeners, I hope you love it. If you do, share that love uh, on our Apple Podcast reviews and consider our Patreon. Because fresh material all the time. We recently covered Dark Skies. <laughs> Until next week, Stuart Gordon's Dolls, we bid you adieu. Good night. Good night.